Hey, this is Seikos, and I never listen to the Order 66 podcast. I am Nicholas, and I don't know to listen to the podcast. This is... D20 Radio, where gamers roll. Execute Order 66. Welcome back, one and all, to the Order 66 podcast. This is Order 66, number 52, for January 25th, 2009. A beautiful Sunday afternoon here from the locals of Dallas, Texas. This is GM Dave. With me, as always, my co-host, partner in crime, crime lord, Sith, well, not a Sith lord, GM Chris. What is up, Gamer Nation? It is I, GM Chris, here with GM Dave. Of course, as again, we always are in the fine week that we come to you with coming week of podcast. Uh, yeah. Um, we're here, and we're here to talk about Star Wars Saga Edition. For those of you who may have walked into the room for the first time, the Order 66 podcast is the only fan-generated podcast devoted to the glories of the best D20 system currently in existence, Star Wars Saga Edition. And, and as uh, of we right have a special now... Guest Oh, sorry. I was I was about to step on you and say, as of right now, we are now fifty episodes ahead of our guest, oh, Mr. Rodney snap. Thompson. <laughs> yeah. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> oh, don't you know what? You know what, Rodney? Just t- tell him, tell him to tell him to just piss off. Tell him, you know, tell tell him what you think of him. Tell him he's not, you know, that you know. At, at the very least, your two episodes are official episodes of no you, know, you guys have done a great job right i mean I, I can't complain about that at all and you guys are doing good stuff and uh it just takes a little bit more to get the official one done than the uh awesome order 66 podcast just a skosh i would say what is with you in skosh you said that like 18 times in the pre-show what what's what where, where where's what's skosh where's that I, I honestly don't know i don't i mean these things pop into my head from hither and yon <laughs> Well, we're glad to have you here, Rodney. How you doing, man? I've been better health-wise, but uh, doing okay otherwise. Uh, staying busy at work. You know how it goes. Yes, sir. Yeah. This is this is very true. This is very true. Well, we have uh, Jedi Master Rodney Thompson on with us today to talk about, of course, the brand new uh, campaign guide that is out for the Clone Wars, and we will be spending some time discussing that. Um, but first, announcements. But first... Yes! Baba Booey. Well, Dave, you laughed when RF8 said they were going to go weekly. I scoffed for a second, but I believe I, am, I have become a believer. I have too, because episode 13 of Radio Free Homlet is up. And DM Tim and the crew preview new classes and talk the talk of 4th edition goodness, uh, which is a good thing to talk about. I'm, I'm very, I'm very, I'm very excited by that, and I'm also very excited by the fact that um, you finally got your your mug back in front of a mic with Joe. Did you not? Who? 
Me? You? Yeah. Yes. Kind of, sort of. This morning we recorded uh, episode or Holocron number five. And we uh, we ran around the table, talked about all the new concept artwork that's out there for Star Wars The Old Republic. There's some new screenshots out there. They, um, they go in and um, have the Mon Calamari pretty much as a confirmed race now, playable. So we're getting that's a little bit... Yeah, exactly. They have some other things that... You know, screenshots, avatars that lead you to believe that uh, the race is like the Bith and um, and uh, others are going to be playable as well. And you know, you just kind of you just kind of have to assume that things like Rodians are going to be in there. But you know, you never know. Never know. So, Rodney, are you are you going to like waste your life with the rest of us when this game comes out, at least for a month or two? Well, it's entirely possible. I actually was. Like I, I tried Star Wars Galaxies, didn't even make it past the first month of like free play after buying the game, and so I you know, kind of dropped off there. But then I did play World of Warcraft for about two years, but I stopped playing that about a year and a half ago, two years ago too. So uh, I'd say that I'm about ready for the next phase of my nerdity to consume my life. So knowing Bioware and knowing how good their stuff has been and the fact that I am a total sucker for anything Star Wars, I'd say I'll at least be giving it a shot. And if it's half as good as I think it's going to be, I would say I will almost certainly be playing it. You know, the other thing is any kind of video game or movie or book or comic, it doesn't matter whether it's good or bad. Usually I'll give it a shot because there's always something you can steal for your RPG in there. So, yeah, I'd I'd say I'll I'll be uh, at least trying it out and most likely sticking it out for the long haul i'm anxious to see i'm 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 i am trepidatious you know after you know galaxies was fun then they kind of you know toured a new one and changed a lot so i'm I'm trepidatious but again i'm 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 in your boat i trust bioware so we'll see we'll make you guys both officers in the order of 66 that's going to be the guild name is that is that that's the guild the the order of 66 i love it Well, also up uh, for your listing pleasure, for those of you who may have board game addictions, very much like myself, I spent the weekend playing a whole crap load of board games, um, episode six of Game On is available for your perusal, and uh, Brian and Andy, or Fiddleback and Ravenwing on the forums, increase their geek cred dramatically as they take the time to talk games and answer some listener questions. And I haven't had a chance to listen to this episode yet, but I, I've been told it's fantastic, and it's probably what I'm going to do when we are done here, because I've want to listen to it yeah ah okay yeah so and, I'll, and dave I'll if people want to listen to these to these casts where can they go uh i bet they can find them all at d20radio.com that's just what i'm thinking probably yeah pro- probably a, a wise guess I, I would i would say yeah and um and if you look really hard uh if, is that not right rodney if you look really hard uh several times because it's very hard to find um on on the main website you might be able on the right hand side to find a link I don't want to be uh, critical, but it took me a few tries. Well, <laughs> the 49 people in our chat room seem to not have a problem with it, so, you know. Oh, well, yeah, but they, they've all got it, like, like they on, probably on, have you know, it on their saved. favorites. Yeah, that's you know. true. That's true. It's like, it's like there. But anyway, yes, yes. You know, hey, so maybe we can like get it pumped up, you know, all, all that. I, I know you're working on the big site, Dave, but... Um, the D20 Radio Live vidcast is going on right now. And, of course, you guys can go to Ustream.tv and look for the Order 66 podcast. Find us and uh, watch this uh, recording live and participate in the live chat with everyone else. And uh, it's it's a very good. It's mm-hmm. a very good. Yummy, yummy. Mm-hmm. Yummy, yum. Yum, yum. And um, I guess also, 
other things you could look for while you're there. Uh, D20radio.com slash forums is, of course, our forums. And there you can find the build contest that is currently going on. I am soliciting NPCs, and there is very little time left. Um, I am looking for NPCs for my campaign. Uh, 10 to 20 levels of goodness, non-heroic, heroic, anything in between. The contest ends January 31st, and all the details are listed therein. And uh, the winner of this amazing contest will, uh, of course, receive a D20radio.com t-shirt. Um with uh, probably most likely a huge Order 66 uh, you know, kind of thing plastered on the back, which uh, I will be paying for and, and shipping to you um, via Nick at Custy, Custom Crazy Tees, uh, which is very, very cool. So you guys should get to the uh, forums at d20radio.com slash forums and check it out. And if you have any other questions, you can, of course, email me, gmchris at d20radio.com. Right. And lastly, Dave, juicy bits of web goodness. Uh. All right. All right. If any of you benighted souls have yet to pick up the Clone Wars campaign guide, you poor, poor, poor rat finks. Um, even after the healthy heaping of awesome sauce that will comprise this episode, you still aren't convinced. You you want an upfront look at it beforehand. We'll head over to Wizards of the Coast Star Wars RPG main page for a two, count them, two excerpts from the book, a look at the Verk species and the stats for the ever-so-crispy Clone Blaze Trooper. Uh, check it out right now at www.wizards.com slash Star Wars. And then go buy Clone Wars, you ninny. That's right. Join the rest of the human race. I don't know why that species sounds like a bodily function. Verk. The Verk? Verk. The Verk. Sounds like okay, I let, just me, lean let me over ask you two this question. Mm-hmm. Like, like the most famous Verk in the galaxy is Rodney? Coleman Trevor. Coleman Trevor. Does that sound like an alien name to you? No. Sounds like a made up name. And, well, seriously, Coleman Trevor. It's like a guy I went to high school with, Coleman Trevor. And he's a Jedi Master. I never got that. I never got well, that, but Chris, that's me. You do, you do know where he gets that name, right? Enlighten me. So Robert Coleman is a big wig for Industrial Light and Magic. So Coleman Trevor's name is Robert Coleman's last name, and then Robert backwards is Trebor. So Coleman Trebor. Nice. Okay, I have learned something awesome, and it is thanks to you. That is, wow, okay. Well, I had no clue. That's that, that that that's like eight pieces that just fell together in my head. Yeah, a lot of the names from the prequels are actually the names of ILM staffers or Lucasfilm staffers, um, anagrammed or backwards or what have you. That's pretty cool. Mm. Well, that's awesome to know. How do you how do you acquire this knowledge? The Force. Uh, super Geek. I'm just <laughs> going to play the Super Geek card. <laughs> well, that's a fair card to play. Um, speaking of cards. Gentlemen, I, I did happen to uh, walk down to my post office box um, earlier this week, and I did happen to get a postcard in, if uh, you guys would be interested in taking a look at it. Okay, sure. Hey, well, you don't want to. We don't have to. You know, you don't sound too terribly excited, Dave. Well, I never am, but we oh, can go on. Oh. You sound like somebody like 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 put salt in your cereal this morning. Is everything okay? Are you Every- depressed there, buddy? No, not really. No? You sure? Yeah. Do you, do you want, like, do you want a hug? Tito, give me a tissue. Do, do you want a hug? You sure you don't want a hug? I don't can... even begin to send me a hug. I can I, I can hug you through the webcam. I can I can hug you. I can just hug. Hug. Is it a hug? No? <clears throat> D20 Radio, where gamers roll. www.d20radio.com. This podcast. Okay. Uh, Dave's taking his ball and going home. I will uh, end the show on your ass. But will you end the show on Rodney's ass? Well, it's your fault. I would like to leave my ass out of this, please. (laughs) (laughs) 
me too. Ooh. All right, guys. Damn, boy! I tell you what. Hopefully, the the crunch whores that are on our on our uh, forums are going to get onto you for that tangent, not me. Hey, you know what? I hope so. <laughs> All right, postcards. Uh, I have in front of me a postcard from our good friend Commander Cody, and uh, this um, clearly artificially constructed postcard is very well made. And the picture on the face is of a small green world surrounded by what appears to be rings. But when looking at the details, the ring is actually an orbital station. And the postcard reads, Welcome to Kuat, visitor. Your new ship purchase will be of the best quality. Kumquat. From across the galaxy, it's time for postcards from Commander Cody. GM Dive and GM Chris. Hi guys. It's back to business as usual this week, although I can't say I'm missing clandestine missions and unexplained travelers. This week the squad and I have been given the task of accompanying Moff Den Wessex back to the Core Worlds and the Kuat Sector. We've arrived at the planet Kuat, home of the famous Kuat Drive Yards, manufacturers of some of the most well-known starships in the galaxy. Morph Wessex has been given the task of analyzing a proposed contract with Kuat Systems to design a new type of massive Imperial battleship. I suppose it's called a Dreadnought. Although I imagine they'll finalize a different name for it, as is often the case. Kuat Driveyards has almost single-handedly built the bulk of the Imperial fleet and is responsible for the glorious Star Destroyers so many of my men call home. They've been a steadfast Imperial ally, and it's fascinating to see the production home of these great machines of war in person. Kuat itself is orbited by two small moons, the planet itself covered in idyllic forests and grasslands, mostly due to the massive terraforming by the wealthy families that colonized Kuat millennia ago. But the most stunning feature of the planet by far is the massive orbital shipyard array, a ring of factories and assembly shipyards that form a solid ring around the entire planet. It's here that the best of the Empire is constructed. Moff Wessex appears to be a quiet, calculating man. My understand is here only to review plans and paperwork. I've heard rumors that any construction of a new ship won't even be here at Kuat, although I can't imagine a better place outfitted to do it. But as is common with proper military intelligence, highly sensitive projects are handled away from prying eyes, so who can say? <laughs> Perhaps there'll be one day a starship so large that battalion after battalion of troopers can call it home, quickly and efficiently bringing justice and order to the galaxy. A ship whose mere presence would frighten weak frighten weak troublemakers into quiet and surrender. Ha! <laughs> a clone can dream, eh? Well, listen guys, I've got to go. Uh, the Morph will be transporting to the shipyard soon, and you'll need accompaniment. If you're out of the Core Worlds, and you'd love to see a beautiful example of Imperial culture, dedication, and ingenuity, visit the glory of Kuat. There's few sites like it. Maybe they'll even let you test drive a Star Destroyer, hey? <laughs> Later, guys. Long live the Empire! Your friend, Commander Cody. Well, nice of him to write, you know, again and again. Oh, it's good to hear. And right there. And right there. And now, and right there. Stormtrooper Poetry. We stopped a spice smuggler the other day because he failed to pay his way. We searched his ship and found his stash. Too late, he bribed us with his cash.
We took everything he had hidden, locked it up as we were bidden, except two bricks which the boys took. We tried it out to have a look, and now we pancake, starfish, monkey, jujube. The colors. Oh, look at the colors. Stormtrooper Poetry. They're getting better, you know. They are getting better. It's very interesting. You know, I went out to the uh, the Star Destroyer um, dealership uh, last week. You know, t- tried to take a test drive. You know. Oh, did you? Did you have to leave a deposit? Um, I, yeah, I had to leave my license. Um, you know, uh, but uh, you know, I figured that was a small sacrifice to pay. They're they're a little little hard to handle. Those those really? Star Destroyers. So did you yeah. walk up and say Lilo Dallas Multipass? Lilo Dallas Multipass. That's another wonderfully obscure reference. God, I haven't seen that film in forever. There you go. They need to make a sequel to that. Bah. Humbug. <laughs> okay, so we're going to dispense with D20 Docking Bay until later because of the massive conflagration of talent we have with us here this evening. Ooh, $38 word. You're too kind. You know. Anyway, so we get right into the crunch of it. So what are we here to talk about? We're here to talk about the Clone Wars Campaign Guide. Who hit what shelves on Tuesday? Correct. Uh, this past Tuesday, I think. Yeah. Awesome. When I pick mine up. Awesome. Yeah, I know you. You came marching into my cube and said, "I got my book." I did. My FLGS did not let me down. They never do. And uh, they had the book for me, and it was totally awesome. Oh. Yep. Oh. I'm. I'm still. I've. I've only. I've only. I think actually read through about half of it. I've gone through all the mechanics, but I'm just. I'm salivating. It's a very good book. So um, we're going to talk about it. We are. We're going to talk about it all. We're going to talk about from creation to working with Riker and everything. Did he really have hair that wouldn't move? No, no, that's that's, that's Wiker. Oh, sorry. Yeah. (laughs) Well, Rodney, again, man, thank you for coming on and talking to us about this. Always a pleasure to have you. Um, So the the book released Tuesday. and obviously, a lot of a lot of people are waiting for this. I mean, you know, Clone Wars is kind of one of those iconic settings. Um, it's a real iconic part of the Star Wars universe, I think. Um, and I mean, for for many of us, especially people that maybe didn't read a lot of the EU, I mean, it really didn't get fleshed out. We didn't really get a feel of it um, in the whole saga until after Episode Three, and then you know, the the past and current animated features. Um, and then there's you know, now there's of course been a host of books and comics written. I mean, and I know it's been a while since you guys created it. I know there's a heck of a lag there, but I mean, when you, when you were were coming together and trying to create this this supplement, was there any, aside from just having a Clone Wars campaign book, were there any like underlying themes in gameplay or uh, you know tone that you wanted heavily echoed throughout the book, or did you come at it a certain way? I mean, anything specific there? Well, there's actually a couple of different questions there. Um, so. I think you'll recall back when we talked about the Knights of the Old Republic book, one of the things that I really enjoyed about working on the book was that we got to take all of these disparate sources and sort of bring them together into a coherent setting. Well, that's just as true for Clone Wars as it is anything else, because we'd had the films and we've had books and comics and video games and uh, now a new TV show, all these different sources that have kind of presented different takes on the Clone Wars. And so this is our chance to take all that and bring it together into a setting that 
that you know you can really look at and say, okay, that's what the Clone Wars are, right? Clone Wars is basically it's the World War II of Star Wars, right? It has very similar themes, and uh, so we got to kind of bring everything together to emphasize that. Well, when you say we, obviously you're talking about you. I mean, you, Patrick Stutzman, and J.D. Weicker. Um, now, J.D. I noticed was also one of the co-authors for, co-authors for Scum and Villainy. Um, but Patrick, I mean, has he, and this is his first credit as far as a source book, isn't it? Uh, no, actually. So one thing that, um, we don't do is we don't always put every single author on the cover of the book. So I do have to uh, say that Clone Wars also benefited from design by, uh, Gary Asseford and Rob Brown, two other freelancers of mine. Now this is Patrick's first cover credit. So big kudos to him. Um, what? but Patrick also worked on the threats of the galaxy source book. That was actually his first uh, source book work that he did for us. But that book was another one that had just so many authors that you can't put, you know, seven authors on the cover of the book because it's going to look like, you know, this big wall of text on the cover. And there's just aesthetic reasons why you don't do that. So we tend to prioritize the authors by how much they contributed. And then also, you know, just to make sure that the people that worked on the book get the right amount of credit and everything. If I could put everybody's name on the cover of the book, I would, but it's just, I mean, at a certain point you have to say, okay, you know, we have to have main authors and, and additional designers as well. Interesting. So, okay, you, they're saying this in the chat room, World War II. So you, you and I, I happen to agree with you, but you, you make the analogy of, of the Clone Wars era to really like the World War II era in Star Wars, you know, where you have these, you know, disparate factions, massive, you know, global or galaxy-spanning war, um, you know, you, obvious issue of, of uh, indentured peoples, things of that nature. Um, it, so that period in history, I guess, you obviously really equate to it. Um, how much was that period of history really influencing your design? Because you mentioned this, and going through the book, I mean, I can, I can, I can see that. Um, I, I mean, just in, in in terms of everything from from positions and, and talents and feats to, to kind of everything else, was that sort of your general overall mind frame looking at it, or did you have something else in, in, in mind generally? Well, so when you look at World War II, it's not necessarily specifically the. Uh, the particular factions, or even necessarily the genesis of the war that I draw that parallel to, it's the way the war was carried out, right? The Clone mm-hmm. Wars spreads throughout the whole galaxy, right? In fact, um, most of the EU that's come out so far has made a point of saying that there are very few corners of the galaxy that are completely untouched, right? There are these, you know, there are these innocent planets, like, I hope I'm not spoiling anything by talking about this past week's uh, Clone Wars animated episode, but you know these planets that are trying to stay out of the war and get sucked into it against their will. And basically, World War II was a war that spanned our entire globe, right? There were very few places that weren't in some way involved in it, right? So you've got this wide-scale conflict. You've got... Um, I, I point out early in, in the first chapter of the book, or actually the second chapter of the book, you've got these high-profile villains that, you know, in, in the real world, you know, you can point to major historical figures that were, uh, you know, these on either side of the war that were, you know, big famous leaders. And then you've got, like, militarization is another big thing, right? In, in the Clone Wars, worlds that once were peaceful producers of, you know, vehicles or what have you, they sort of get converted to this sort of mil- militarized industry to support the war, right? I mean, it's, these, it's, it's about the resources of the galaxy being converted from, you know, peaceful and civilized to 
militarized and violent, right? And that's sort of something you saw, especially in America. I'm not, not, I'm not a huge World War II buff, but I do know a little bit. But like in America, a lot of the American industry was converted from, you know, peaceful domestic things to producing machines of war, producing uniforms, producing ammunition, etc. So there's these sort of, you know, there's, there's, there's a few parallels there. But mostly it's in the fact that this is a war that sweeps across the galaxy and pulls people in whether they want to be pulled into it or not. Yeah. Ask our previous employer about that. <laughs> uh, what? Uh, that being? That would be Wells Fargo. Oh, that bank, yeah. It, it's not, it wasn't World War II, obviously, but it was long, uh, quite some time ago when the uh, all the stagecoach routes were nationalized and Wells Fargo went from, I don't know, 1,800 offices to like, Nine overnight because the uh, government nationalized uh, the network to move. Uh, how does the uh, historian put it at, at uh, there to facilitate the transfer of wartime materials? I believe. <laughs> yeah, and one of the things I noticed in the book too is is you talk about um, several chapters talk about things that happen certain planets and how they're affected. Especially uh, you touch on in the in the Galactic Gazetteer chapter talking about how certain trade routes and planets were really blocked off effectively or had their 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 movements sort of so almost defined for them by whichever power they were you know hold, held held under they, they were held sway to or choose to ally themselves with so I thought that was a great feature to put in the book but yeah I, I guess the thing is the thing you have to realize is no you know no direct parallel can be found for everything between yep. you know the Clone Wars and the American Civil War or the Clone Wars in World War II or Clone Wars in Vietnam anything like that but I think if you look at especially the animated Clone Wars definitely like it, it gives you that feel of the, the World War II style of conflict right it's almost like uh, World War II serial isn't it it's very yeah in fact the, the, you know, the opening prologue to every episode mm-hmm. is very much reminiscent of the newsreels that were showed before movies right. during World War II as well. So I think the Lucasfilm, at least, is trying to draw a, a strong parallel there. And, you know, it certainly works if you think about this, you know, wide galaxy-spanning war. I agree. Um, well, okay, let, let's, let's get into the, to the meat of the book, and we can, I mean, draw the correlation, see how it all kind of relates. Now, initially... Now, you guys have said, you know, that you're going to be, I mean, for the most part, introducing new species, or at least the goal is to introduce new species in virtually every campaign book that comes out. Um, maybe some that are highlighted in that area or get introduced in the films, but um, I'm a big fan of a, lot of a lot of the species that you guys put. I mean, this book has, um, gosh, what, what is it, a, a nine, ten new species, I think? Um, I mean, you, there's there's Dugs, uh, Jendai, Iktachi, Kalish, Kaminoans, Kirkoidians, uh, Nautilans, Nelvanians, and Verks um, were, were all the new species that were listed in this. And I guess the, the couple questions that we had from some listeners about, about some of the species in this book. Right. Now, Watsi came out with a web enhancement a while back that had Dugs in it, if I'm not mistaken. And these Dugs were slightly different. And, I mean, we've, we've seen that with other things as well. Um any any reason for the change or it was was one of the questions that we had come in um i mean was it just you know hey we think this works better or you know i, I mean any any particular reason for for adjusting the dug stats from the original online model uh well so the first thing to realize is that everything that comes through the website doesn't get nearly as much attention as things that go into the books i mean it's just the way things work so when we do a book 
typically I will point the author towards any kind of web supplements we've done on the in that regard. But you know, when when things come back from the designer, I don't require them to have matched up uh, entirely to that web stuff, right? And the right. other thing is, I might I might spend a day uh, developing the web material, but I will spend six to eight weeks developing a book, right? So it just gets more development time, and plus uh, our our books get uh, playtesting as well, right? And so changes will be suggested based on playtest feedback, etc. So um, we're not we're we're, try, we're not going to be beholden necessarily to the stuff that comes out on the website, though we do use it as a starting point. And you know, it, frankly, I I think that um, while the website is a nice way to get new content out there, when we do stuff for the books, it has to be held to a little bit higher standard, and also. Um, you know, it's it's going to be seen by more people. I mean, that's just the just the nature of the web content, uh, like the web content and book dichotomy as well. Um, so yeah, it's it, plus you know the other thing is different authors write different things, right? One designer might design a species one way, and then we look at it and say, yeah, that works. Then another designer might come along and say, actually, I think this would be the uh, better way to do it, and then we might look at that and say, oh, yeah, you know, that is an interesting way to do it, right? There's there's always more than one take on things. Well, I, I personally felt that the web the web based dugs when they first came out were almost a little uh, a little imbalanced. I was very pleased to see the changes that were made with the uh, the published version. So I can see where playtesting may have seriously come into that as well, um, with a, a, as well as a look, good, long, hard, closer look. Um, okay, the, the one other specific species I want to talk about because we got a, I, I got a PM about it was was Gendai. Okay, I had and I knew I was going to get this. I had a I had a rabid fanboy PM me and say, I don't like the Gendai. They can't do what Dirge does. And and my you know I'm, uh, my thought is well of course they can't. That would be completely game breaking. Um, <laughs> I mean. Uh, I mean, I, I have no idea if you worked on Jendai or which author did, but um, I mean, any any thoughts on that regard? Because I'm sure you've probably heard that on the forums as well over at uh, Gleemax. Actually, it's funny. One of the first things I heard on Gleemax was how broken the new Gendai are, and so <laughs> I was a little surprised about that. So they look good at first, right? Like you, when you first look at the Gendai species traits, you're looking at all these things like, wow, they've got all these species abilities. But then you start to think about it, or at least I hope that people are starting to think about it and realize these are not all in combat abilities, right? They're things that happen during downtime. So they are getting all these benefits, but most of them are not, you know, oh, he can do something amazing in combat. It's all, oh, you know, during downtime, he's going to regenerate, right? In the long run, most of the things that the Gendai can do are they can avoid a lot of minor inconveniences. And <laughs> so that's that's sort of the, you know, the way I look at those guys. As for whether they can do what Dirge can do or not, yeah, I mean, there's always this sort of, you know, give and take between what we see Dirge do and what we see, what we want to PC to do, right? Like, when we put these species in the front of the book, we're putting them there, hoping that people will play them for their player characters, right? I mean, um, I know that a lot of people were surprised that we put, like, the Masassi in the Knights of the Old Republic book because, you know, uh, why would you put a GM-only species? Well, you know, we wanted to open up the possibility that some player might be out there and you know, say, you know, this is kind of an interesting backstory. I think I might want to play this. Same with mm -hmm. the Gendai, right? You know, I want people to see this and be inspired to create a really interesting character. And the other thing to realize is most of what we saw Dirge do in the um, Gendi Tartakovsky animated series was pretty out there, much like many of the other things wow. in the uh, in the series as well. So, 
you got to kind of rein things in a little bit. Yeah, I mean, from from the series, Mace Windu could slaughter an entire army single handedly. So, um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, you know, well, it's nice. Dur- Dirge is a badass, right? There's no two ways about it. But no. we can't have everyone that plays a Gendai do all the crazy stuff that Dirge did there, right? Now, might we open up some of those things later? Sure, absolutely. But right out of the gate, you can't expect you know the base Gendai species to be as absolutely crazy as a high level bounty hunter. Mm. Yeah, it makes sense. Well, okay, I, I always ask you this every time you come on and talk to us about a book, so I'm going to ask you now. Do, do you have a favorite species from the book of, of the ones that were released? That is a little bit tougher. Um, I've always actually been a big fan of the Iktachi. Uh, they've always hmm. kind of held a special place for me, so I really like them a lot. Um, I am a fan of the Kirkoidan, not because necessarily of what they are, but because I got to make up a lot of their backstory, right? So um, most of the stuff that you see about the Kirkoidan in this book is completely new based on, you know, what we what we thought was, you know, appropriate based on the character and everything. And plus, you know, the Kirkoidans, they've got kind of an interesting story behind them in that they are trying to overcome this this ancient predatory instinct, right? That they don't want to be seen as physical brutes anymore. They want to be seen as sophisticated and and able to rub elbows with the highest levels of society. So what they've done is they've taken their predatory instincts, transferred them from physical uh, physical instincts over to sort of social instincts. So these, these, they're these sort of social predators that are trying to make everyone think that they are uh, highbrow and sophisticated, which I think is kind of interesting. I'd love to play a Kirkoidan noble sometime and kind of embody that struggle between, you know, we were once this predatory species, but now we've, in, we've evolved, and now I am just this sort of uh, shark-like noble politician, etc. So it's kind of you know, I, I think they've kind of got a neat little backstory. That's cool, Dave. You, you remind me of a Krakoidan, the uh, socially aggressive. You know, uh, struggling with your your baser instincts and yet trying very hard to uh, keep from you know ripping someone's throat out while being nice, very well with with, with a shark tooth smile. <laughs> Blow me. <laughs> Dave's got his happy hat on today. If y'all hadn't noticed, yeah. <laughs> it may be because I keep jiving him. I don't know. All right, moving on in the book, Rodney. Oh, hey, um, you know what? This, I actually took note of the total new talents being 69. Was that important? I assure you it was unintentional. Okay. <laughs> Are there really 69 new talents in the book? Yep. Dave? Dave? Did you, re- did you really count them? Uh, yeah, 42 new ones, 27 new ones for prestige classes. Wow. I'm, okay, slow clap. I'm impressed. Um, <laughs> okay, so there's there's 69 new talents. Good grief. That's that's insane. I knew there were a lot um, in the book, but that's, that's, that's awesome. Um, and one of the things I, I do like about this, Rodney, is the fact that, you know, every book you're adding new talents that relate to the era and people have made the comment before that you know if you don't like a talent or you don't want it used in your game, or better yet, if you want to limit the the resources available to your players, maybe a GM doesn't want to keep up with it, they can just say, okay, we're only going to use this book or this book or this book, and they don't have to worry about all that. You know what I mean? Um, so I, I really like that. Now, having looking at the actual new talents themselves, 
a lot of them seem to have a, sort of an underlying theme, uh, at least several sets of them. Um, many of them seem to be about, you know, combat command, uh, bonus hit points, difficult terrain manipulation, uh, you know, stuff like that. Uh, again, when you were designing the, the, you know, when you guys were designing the talents for the classes, which is obviously the meat of, of really what makes the class the class, I mean, were you still going for that, you know, again, that World War II feel that, you know, what was your general underlying design on it in terms of that? Well, so I can actually talk a little bit more about the design in this section than I can in other parts of the book because I, I designed most of Chapter 2, which is the Heroic Traits, Traits chapter. So the way it all started was I knew I wanted to include this follower system, which seemed to be appropriate given that we see Jedi and we see nobles and we see soldiers leading other people, right? So I, I wanted to do this this uh, this follower system, which we can talk about more in a minute. So I knew right away that certain classes were going to get a whole talent tree dedicated to the follower system. Typically, in the other campaign guides we've done so far, we present one new talent tree for each class and then several talents for other trees in that class, right? So the one thing I wanted to make sure was any class that got a follower talent tree also got its own brand new uh, full-fledged talent tree so that no class got short-shrifted in case you don't want to use the the follower talent trees, right? In case you don't, didn't want to use the follower system. So that way, you're still getting the same amount even if you're not using this little subsystem. Uh, and then from that point, I really just sat down, and m typically my MO when I brainstorm these things is I write down a few bullet points about what these uh, classes would be doing during the Clone Wars period or, you know, during Night Sealer Republic or during the Force Unleashed, right? And basically I take those little traits, and they might be one or two word phrases, and convert them over to talents and feats and what have you, so... You know, for example, when I thought about nobles, I thought, what would a noble be doing in the setting? And, you know, obviously leading troops and, and becoming officers, those were things that we've covered in the core rule book. So I wanted to think, you know, kind of outside the box, what else might a noble be doing in the setting? And then I thought, well, you know, nobles are good at social skills, and plus they're, they're very interested in self preservation. So I thought maybe they they become collaborators, right, where they basically uh, work as double agents for both sides of the war. Right, and so this talent tree is sort of taking that larger concept, right, of of talent tree or of, of um, being a collaborator, and then it condenses it down to what that feels like in play. Now, I do want to jump back just a second. I saw um, Donovan in the chat room mention something mm -hmm. about Jedi not getting a follower talent tree, and that is actually intentional. The reason is each of the classes that got these followers. They got followers that were designed to fit in with their class, right? So a soldier, his follower talents tend to create good soldiers, right? A, a noble tends to need bodyguards and retainers, so his create like the loyal protector, right? With the Jedi, they're actually leading soldiers, right? They, they tend to lead, you know, clone troopers into battle. So I thought, one... You know, if the Jedi wants to lead soldiers, soldiers, he'll dip into the soldier class and pick up those talents, right? Because that's what he does during the Clone Wars. Two, I wouldn't want to put the same kind of follower system underneath the Jedi talents that we did in the other ones. Because, frankly, since each one is tailored to that class, when you think of a Jedi and his followers, you think of actually a Padawan, right? right. And the follower system is designed to create 
up to three other followers, right? And we don't want Jedi running around with three Padawans at a time, right? Necessarily. Uh, so we, you know, so I, I thought, well, so that wouldn't be really appropriate. And plus, frankly, Jedi are already pretty heavily taxed on their talents, right? And I mean, if you're a Jedi, you're probably going to want to pick up both block and deflect. That's sort of a, a two-talent tax that you've already got to deal with. So, you know, it, it's it's one of those deals where I, I thought it was just unnecessary, given that they could dip into another class and pick up the kind of followers they want. And the other thing, too, is, right, you could certainly dip into Soldier, pick up, um, you know, Soldier talents, and then with the permission of your... Uh, of your game master, ha- have your followers actually end up being, you know, Jedi apprentices. So, you know, it's it's one of those things that I just didn't think it was necessary, and I didn't want to take up. I, I didn't want to then, in turn, have to create a you know scoundrel based follower talent tree because that would leave scoundrels as the only ones that didn't get followers. So, yeah, it was sort of this combination of, like, five or six different reasons that I just didn't think it was appropriate. That doesn't mean you can't do it, but I, you know, I figured we had better things to do with the text. Right. Well, that, you pretty much answered my next question, which, I mean, we were, I was going to, obviously, everyone's talking about followers. It seems to be the, the one point of this, uh, of the new rules in this particular book that everyone's really excited about, because it's radically different from anything else that we've seen before, and it fills a hole that we didn't even know was there, uh, which is fantastic. And again, you know, as you say, the noble, the scout, and the soldier are the only ones that can get followers, and why the design differential? Well, that's why. Um, so, Obviously, you've explained, you know, why you design the followers a certain way. Ultimately, you said, you know, when you were thinking about putting them there, you know, that when you look at the Clone Wars and you look at the EU and you look at the films and you see, you know, groups of people leading others, um, was there any other need? Uh, was there any other impetus you guys had for creating the following the follower system? Or was that pretty much it? I mean, in terms of, you know, was it something you'd wanted to do for a while? Or did this kind of come about when you're thinking about, hey, what would be cool for the Clone Wars? Uh, well, actually, I've been kind of kicking around the idea of doing followers for a while because um, during the Clone Wars, that's I mean, that's what we see, right? Especially when you look at the Clone Wars animated series that we have now, right? The new 3D series. They, the main characters lead other people. And yeah, sure, it's mostly Jedi, but I tend to think that if you look at the the episodes that we've seen so far... Commander Rex and Commander Cody and those guys, those are the player characters, right? The, not, you know, the Jedi might be as well, but I could see, you know, the argument that in the last episode, you know, Isla Secura, Ahsoka, and Anakin, plus, um, was it, I think it was uh, Commander Gree or Bly, one of the two, plus Captain Rex, that's a five-person adventuring party right there. <laughs> so I just, uh, you know, it, it seemed appropriate, and it seemed like, you know, a little bit different thing to do. I'm always looking for new mechanics that sort of tweak the way your, uh, tweak the way that your gameplay experience goes, right? That's why when you look at certain talent trees, they sort of incent a certain kind of behavior. Well, these talent trees are designed to uh, incent this behavior that you're, you're essentially, instead of playing one character, you're controlling three, but at the same time, not take up any more time, you know, round to round than any other character. Hmm. And that was what I found to be the most unique aspect of the follower system, the fact that they, they don't really have their own actions, they have yours, which um, is, is a bit of a, um, 
well, frankly, I, th- I think a necessary game constraint, um, just for balance purposes. But uh, I'll also let you guys encapsulated uh, the RPG reason nicely in a nice little sidebar uh, for followers, which is very, very good to see. Sure, and um, you know, I do have I do have the benefit of you know having seen how people react react to certain things on the forums, and so I, I knew that you know if we're going to include this follower system that does use a little bit of an abstraction, people are going to want an easy way to describe it in in game, right? And I think that if you think about it, you plus this this small squad, right? Effectively, that squad becomes your character, not just your character, right? So we want to make sure that. It still plays smooth, but it plays differently. Smooth, but also different. That's the key. Smooth, but different. The tagline for Clone Wars. <laughs> Got it. Well, okay, so w- we had that under the heroic traits, and everyone has been ooing and eyeing over it. Now, usually when we get these new, the new uh, campaign guides released, you guys always take the time to put in skills and new uses for existing skills. And a lot of people tend to go, oh, well, that's nifty and gloss over it. I was really pleased with a lot of the changes you guys made in terms of adding new things you can do um, with skills. And particularly Use the Force. You guys added two new things you could do with Use the Force. One thing that people have been saying they've been doing for a while, but you guys just finally put it in black and white and said, yeah, you can ready in action to use Move Light Object to throw away a grenade. Um, and the other, sure, which and I, thought, I will, I will completely go ahead and say, by the way, that that ish, that uh, instance of the move light object skill is definitely a reaction to fans on the forum saying, "Hey, can you do this?" And I thought I would say, you know what? Yes, you can. Here you go. It's in a book now. That's awesome. But yeah, it, it's cool. It makes sense. Um, and I, I, I like it. And the other thing, of course, uh, for people who haven't had a chance to see the book yet, is that you can t- make it use the force check to put somebody else in a force trance. Which, if they're willing, which I thought was very interesting, and especially well, like we've, for we've a wartime that. campaign. Yeah, you, you've seen it exactly. So why can't I do it? One and two for a wartime campaign, especially when you're when you're grievously wounded or you. I, I don't know. I, I guess at least in my experience, when you're having a war campaign, it it can tend to become more of, for lack of a better term, dungeon crawl in terms of you know continuous threat with very little recovery time. And I think one of the most powerful tools the Jedi has is that they can make the best use of their recovery time with Force Trance. And, you know, al- allowing you to do that for another character, I think, is a, a very nice thing to be able to do. So. Sure. And, and the other thing is, you look at a lot of the adventures we've seen the heroes go on in the Clone Wars animated series, and oftentimes it's these heroes getting stuck on this backwater planet, right? I don't think we've seen anybody getting a back-to-tank yet in the 3D animated series. So this is sort <laughs> of like the, you're stranded on another planet, and your soldier gets you know totally clobbered by the natives. This is how you can bring him back without having without having to have a... Uh, a surgeon or a combat medic there with you. That's lovely. So, aside from skills, also you guys have. Um, I think there's looks like there's over twenty new feats in the book, and uh, a lot of them. A lot of them are racial. Uh, a couple of them are racial specific, but a lot of them allow you to do some pretty cool abilities. Um, and there's some wonderful feats there as well. And then, of course, there's a bunch of new prestige classes in the book, and particularly, well, not a bunch, but there's three. There's the, the droid commander, which we've already, already, on Tuesday, I got a, I got a, an email from a fan saying, please talk about this next. Um, yeah, wasn't that funny? Um, it's a hilarious. So uh, we've got the droid commander, the military engineer, and I have a player in my current game, Dave, tell me that 
Booter would not have. I mean, he he just took a level in saboteur. If he if he had known military engineer was coming out, he probably would have totally redesigned his character. Yeah. Um, and, well, and to be absolutely honest and fair, we haven't technically completely leveled up yet because we haven't played again. So he might rethink it. He might rethink. He may go military engineer. That's true. That's very true. Okay. And then lastly, the vanguard, um, which and they're all really cool classes. Um, I don't want to delve into them too deeply because obviously we'd like to do a show on each one at some point. <laughs> but uh, again, I guess same question for species, Rodney, of, of, the, of the prestige classes here. Let me just ask you a couple questions and let you expound. Um, was there a general theme you were going for with these? Um, what do you like about them? What don't you like about them, if there's anything? And lastly, what is your favorite of the new three prestige classes? Well, I will say that I think my favorite piece of art of the three is of the uh, Republic Commando in the stealth armor, which I know. that that piece of art turned out vastly better than I couldn't have, could have imagined. Right, just this <laughs> it's, it's very awesome, yeah. clean depiction of the clone commando, and it looks, frankly, it looks awesome. Um, <laughs> as for your other questions, um, the design behind them, uh, they were sort of each one sort of came out of. A different need, right? So the droid commander was part of my desire to encourage players and game masters to think about playing as the separatists, right? Now, we don't have a ton in here that says, here's how you play as the separatists, but I'm hoping that some players and game masters will look at this and say, you know what, this would be a really interesting campaign, right? To play a game with a couple of different droids as as player characters, right? Not just one player as a droid, but a couple of different droids. And that's why you also see feats earlier in the book, in the in the you know, the second chapter, that make it easier to repair droids and easier to repair multiple droids, right? So the yeah. droid commander was sort of not really a nudge in that direction, but it was designed to hopefully inspire people. And then plus, you know, it'll be used by game masters for their NPCs. And also, you know, I'm Though the illustration is of a battle droid, I could certainly be see this being you know used in other eras as well, right? This this is a prestige class designed to overcome some of the deficiencies of playing as droids, right? I mean, without the right prestige classes or talents, it can be sometimes difficult for a droid to benefit from you know some of the effects that other party members might have. So this was this is sort of to help out that guy that wants to be in the multi-droid party. Gotcha. Now, the military engineer was uh, pretty easy. I knew I wanted to have something in there for the fixers of the Republic Commandos, right? And um, this was also another chance. This was a chance for us to do a, a prestige class that was sort of an outgrowth both of the Scoundrels Outlaw Tech talent tree, and also of the tech-oriented soldiers as well. It sort of kind of hybridizes those, those two archetypes, right? You, you take you know, your military guy, your, your, your engineer, and you take your Scoundrel, the Outlaw Tech. This is a prestige class that those characters really want to go into. And part of the reason why he gets the, um, the field-created weapon ability that gives him you know, a little bit of an extra bump is because I can see people going into it from um, Scoundrel as well, right? So basically, eventually being a couple points behind as they go into it. It, it, it makes good sense. I love the ability. It, it reminds me a lot of the Saboteur in terms of the ability to just create something out of nothing for the encounter. It's very, I don't know, very fitting. It's very cinematic. I, I just I love the concept of somebody just cobbling something together on the fly. Sure. It, yeah. It's very cool. 
Oh, yeah. dude, and you know what? That brings it up. That Booter can't do that yet. His base attack bonus isn't going to be high enough. No, it's not. So, yeah, he he may have because he multi-classed heavily. So it may it may have changed things had he known it was coming out. But uh, I don't know. He could still hey, he could take levels of saboteur and you know military engineer. What are you going to do? Yeah, there you go. <laughs> yeah, and the uh, the vanguard is actually was actually created out of a desire to have a nice, easy to choose scout prestige class, right? We wanted something that was, you know, when you're a scout and you're looking for a prestige class, this really jumps out at you, even if you're just the straightforward all scout all the time kind of guy, right? So it's like, I don't want to be a bounty hunter, you know. It's yeah. Right, right, exactly, right. This is the this is the scout of scouts. <laughs> gotcha. Cool. Well, so, okay, so, so which one, so, uh, I know, uh, aside from those, um, was there anything that you may have wanted to put in that you didn't get a chance to? Um, I don't concepts? think so. I, I think we pretty much got uh, everything in there as far as character abilities that I was looking to put in there. So I'm pretty pleased with the way it came out. Cool. Well, the next chapter in the book is obviously the Force, and there's a lot of a lot of new stuff. Obviously, the Jedi have a huge role in the Clone Wars, um, and there's eight brand spanking new Force powers. Um, dude, Phase. <laughs> Awesome. Uh, totally awesome. I was a little worried it might be broken, and then I saw the DCs, and I was like, oh, okay, wow. Okay, that's that's actually well done. Um, yeah. Very, very... <laughs> what, what, what? Tell me what. So, so I, I have this sort of internal struggle every time I design a book, right? On the one hand, there's this sort of OCD part of me that wants to include everything from Star Wars lore, <laughs> right? That wants to take any and every possible thing that you see and include it. Then there's the part of me that's the game designer. And he says, dude, really? People walking through walls? And so this is sort of my reconciliation of those two things, right? It's really hard to do. But, you know, you can move and you can just move a little bit through walls, but I'm going to let you do it, right? The Dark Lady does it, and I'm hoping that we don't suddenly get uh, 11 billion emails from people saying, oh my gods, why have you done this to my game? You have ruined Star Wars. <laughs> so, um, yeah, we're going to keep our fingers crossed that that doesn't happen, but yeah, FaZe was one of those that my my conflict between including everything from Star Wars and game design uh, smarts, the, the the OCD, uh, you know, Star Wars guru side won out on that one. So I can understand why people might seem skeptical at first, but at the same time, this isn't in the core rulebook. Feel free to not include it if you want. I I probably won't include it in any games outside of like Clone Wars and maybe. Maybe Legacy Era, but I, I don't think so. Yeah. Okay. The other two, I guess, Force Powers I want to talk about, and this is kind of actually um, a question that got got uh, sent to me by one of our listeners just before the show started. We had a little debate spring up on our own forum community about Malaysia and Moritro. Um, in particular, the fact that Malaysia is a light side power, and Moritro is, is, is neither light nor dark. It's just a power. And... I mean, we it was it turned into an, uh, to an almost bitter flame war. Not quite. We have a pretty civil community, but they were like, you know, no way, Malaysia is not a light side power. It shouldn't be. Well, Moritro should be, and all that. Um, any any words of wisdom on this as to as to just for our our community why Malaysia was was chosen to be a light side power, and uh, Moritro was not. Um, 
the issue with both of those, and this is something that uh, unfortunately has yet to be completely resolved, is that over the course of the last, let's see here, 10 years, I want to say, both of those powers originated around the same time as the Phantom Menace. And over the course of the last 10 years, there has been some um, conflicting information on both of those powers, and eventually you just have to make a call and say, you know, this is going to be this way, and this is going to be this way. Uh, I don't have the books uh, on me right now because I'm sitting in my computer room and not in my library area, but I believe that the uh, light side designator from Malaysia came from um, material in the Power of the Jedi source book. Uh, and mm-hmm. then Moricro, or Moritro, or however you pronounce it, I always said Moricro, but that's because I'm a redneck from Tennessee, probably. Um, <laughs> but Moritro, Moricro, whatever, that one it sort of falls into the, the um, force grip kind of thing, well, you, right? Where, you can kill somebody with it if you, if you right. do it hard enough, right. you know. But it, but you know these are also powers that are shown to be used by Jedi Masters on the Jedi Council in The Phantom Menace. So, yeah, I mean, I, I can understand why certain people might feel that um, they should be tagged differently. And if you want to change it in your game, feel free. There's not really any game balance reason why they're, they're tagged the way they are. It's more um, that we were trying to find the best uh, solution that worked with what has come before. Gotcha. Gotcha. Well, that makes good sense. Thank you. Um, bang, bang. Um, force talents in the book. Uh, there's uh, looking at the six new talents uh, for existing force talent trees, and thank you, uh, a whole new light side talent tree, which I I've been waiting for since we have our dark side talent tree. Um, and it's got four new talents of its own, and, and that's totally awesome. And then you guys had I think three new all new force traditions uh, statted out uh, with our own talent trees as well: uh, the Bandogora, um, uh, the Believers, and the Kurunai. That's right. uh, which is, is very cool. Um, talk to me about the light side talent tree. I mean, was it just was it just an impetus like, okay, we we need one. We have the dark side now. We need the light. Or I mean, was there anything specific you were going for with that? So I actually have to give a lot of credit to uh, Patrick Stutzman because he wrote this chapter. Although um, I will admit that I also developed the heck out of it as well. But Patrick <laughs> basically, when we were first talking about the book. Um, he emailed me. He said, "You know, we've got this dark side talent tree. I think it'd be really nice to have a light side talent tree." So that we sort of give people an incentive to to play the iconic Jedi character, right? And I, I had to agree, right? It's certainly um, it's certainly something that we could work on. I, I see a lot of times people taking these dark side talents for their characters, even if they're not playing dark side characters. Like, oh, I'm I'm walking on the edge, right? Or oh, I'll get rid of my uh, get rid of my dark side points with uh, force points or whatever. So this was sort of our way to say, you know, this this is why you want to play a Jedi that doesn't get dark side points. This is why you you play a character that walks the path of the light that doesn't dabble in the darkness, right? These are things that you want to have. So it's sort of once again, I, I talk about incenting certain behavior. This is the talent tree that we want to incent the. I'm playing a good guy. I'm playing a Jedi that follows the code that doesn't dabble on the dark side. Okay. And that's pretty much it. Somehow Chris is like talking into his mic and he doesn't realize the fact that he's muted. So I'm, we'll I'm, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Him. My mic is my mic is going in and out. My my <laughs> my bad. 
<laughs> no, I was saying I, I when I first read the the prerequisites for the for the talents, the fact that you know you flat out can't have any type of dark side score, I was like, okay, whoa. And if you even have one dark side point, you lose access to all the talents in the tree. I was like, whoa. And that was the first thought that came to my mind. Well, this is incentive. Finally, uh, you know, this is a mechanical incentive to make a, an interesting role playing choice that's quite frankly harder to make. So, I I I like it. <laughs> now, also. Um, there were like I think looking at this, there's eight new techniques in the in the in the force chapter and three new force secrets, and it looks like we're I mean there's a force technique for almost every new force power in the book, and then of course one for for vital transfer, advanced vital transfer. Um, you know, what, I had a friend ask me this: is, is the, looking at the new books and everything that's coming out, is the ultimate goal here to have an an advanced or an improved technique for for nearly every force power out there? Is that, I mean, to to allow that option, is that the ultimate goal, or you know, what's what are the, what are we going for there? Um, well, to be honest with you, I I have no interest in being shackled by symmetry, right? Mm. And this is something that has plagued. Uh, role-playing games, but all games, in fact, for years. And I say plagued because I think it leads to a lot of unnecessary design, right? So if we can find a good uh, Im- uh, a good technique to go along with the powers, I'm more than happy to include it, right? Um, and then sometimes there will be times where I'll say, uh, for example, advanced vital transfer is a really great example of, I was like, oh, this would have made a great technique for this. And so I'll just throw it in there because I think it's interesting. I don't want us to feel like we have to have an improved you know, technique for every single one because what ends up happening is you're like, okay, you sit there and you're like, okay, I've got improved techniques for five of these six force powers. What am I going to do for this sixth one? And you sit there and you sit there and eventually you end up forcing yourself to create something that you don't feel is a great idea. But you do it anyways and it goes into the game and then what you end up with is a... a a technique, a game mechanic that was designed without any real inspiration. It was designed out of necessity, not necessarily out of this is a good mechanic. So I don't want us to feel handcuffed by that. That being said, the design of force powers is such that we are able to usually find little tweaks to these things because in, in a lot of ways, force techniques and, and force secrets are a lot like the the meta magic uh, from third edition D anD D in that they're they're basically little tweaks on uh, your different powers. So for the most part, it's pretty easy to find something like that. Um, but we're not gonna we're not gonna try and stretch it and try and come up with things that don't fit. Um, I know that Jedi Academy, which is coming out later this year, has an extremely large amount of force powers in it. Um, more than any other book, and I haven't counted, but I think more than any two books combined. Uh, wow. And not not all of them have force techniques associated with the powers, just because we're not going to force it if it doesn't work. So that's just, uh, you know, it, it's one of those things where we want to provide interesting mechanics when it works, and if it doesn't work, then we're not going to, you know, we're not going to twist any designer's arm to come up with them. Well, that makes sense. It, it's good to hear that you're not doing it just for the symmetry. That I, I agree. I think that was one of the things that, in I mean, not to put too fine of a point of it, I thought plagued uh, third edition D and D specifically, um, and to a smaller extent and, RCR. Yeah, and, and I don't want to sound cri- I don't want to sound critical of older games, right? Because no, certainly no. I've I've caught myself doing it too, right? Like I've found myself. Um, basically saying they're going, oh my god, I need a I need a sixth talent for this talent tree because every other talent tree has six. Then I'll sit there and say, oh, i got to come up with... Wait a minute, no I don't. I'll just go with it. 
right? And so, <laughs> yeah. yeah, I believe me, it's something I have to police myself on a lot. Okay, well, <laughs> I, I, I don't know that I, you're right, I, I tend to find myself, I, I don't know, I think people just generally kind of think that way. And maybe it's the fact that we were weaned on earlier systems, I don't know. But, okay, equipment. All right, lots of new starships, lots of new droids. There's stats for for a Doom Treader, which is awesome. It's like my favorite transport. The I love I love the Anvil. Um, Hell's Anvil is one of my favorite ships from the EU, um, which is very cool. So okay, th- there's several weapons in this too. Now I-, I wanted to ask you about this. Now in prior books, Saga seems to have usually abstained from calling out specific uh, blaster models. All right. But, you know, in this book, we have some very specific units with very specific benefits to them. You know, I mean, the, the Zerka Adjudicator, the GTEC 12, you know, Blastic uh, DT 12, DH 23. Was there a reason for the shift in this particular book? Well, part of it boils down, it, it, part of it stems from the fact that we wanted to include new equipment, and um, I, I, I tend to give my designers a pretty free hand with designing things. So I say, you know, you're responsible for the equipment chapter, make sure you include some new equipment here, go. So on the one hand, you know, part of this is just that the designer of this chapter, and I'll be honest with you, I don't even remember who it was, felt like, you know, they could do something interesting with uh, specific models. The other thing is the core rulebook kind of assumes uh, that you're going to be playing in either the Rebellion era or the Clone Wars era in the first place, right? That's where the bulk of the material is from. So if you're going to do you know, new gear for an era that's already sort of covered by the core rulebook, I felt like it was, a little, you know, it was okay to do some more specific uh, stuff. Whether or not that turns out to be a good idea or not, I guess, you know, hindsight will end up being 2020 on that. Um, it's one of those things that I, I was okay with it because I thought that, you know, it would do something unique and kind of twist uh, the, you know, the kind of things that we saw that were available in the core rulebook without, you know, necessarily having to artificially create a whole bunch of new weapons and stuff. I will say that um, I believe that this is a, this is, un- this book is unique um, in that it presents more specific models. Now, You'll see in Legacy Era, um, I, I, I can say this because I designed all the equipment for Legacy Era, you'll see a return to more unique um, types of weapons. So gotcha. uh, kind of going back to you know what the other campaign guides have done and providing less specific models but you know more lar- like larger categories with their own kind of unique things. Uh, you'll see that in Legacy Jedi Academy is all Jedi weapons, so that tends to be a lot of variations on the lightsaber plus a few others. Um, and I don't want to really spoil anything for Rebellion Era because not 100% gotten. We don't have that one 100% finalized yet, right? But so, yeah. The the basic breakdown was the you know the author wanted to do this. I was okay with it because we've already been very uh, general on the things from this era in the core rulebook. And I hope, you know, with with a few exceptions of things that are pretty darn good, I hope that people will find these interesting, but not necessary, not not mandatory by any stretch. Gotcha. 
Well, okay, well, that's good to know. And I know there's been a lot of back and forth on it. I mean, in our own community, we have people that are like, oh, thank you for the generalness. You know, the, the specifics just bogged us down. And then we have other folks, one of them is in our chat room right now, screaming, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. You know, that are, that are specificity machines that, that love the, you know, lists of, you know, hundreds of different, you know, little uh, you know, specific model numbers. So I, I don't know. So far, I think I think it's been a, it's been a good mix to see. I think it's interesting now that, that we have both. But also, I don't know, man. It, it, it this is the Clone Wars. We're talking about a source book that above anything else should teach you how to run combat effectively. And it almost seems to to smack in the face of that idea if you don't allow someone to geek out with the specifics regarding weaponry. You know what I mean? I mean, I can I can see a clone getting nitpicky over the fact that he doesn't have you know his the the, the Blastec DL12 at his side. You know that he's relegated to a, a DH23 or something like that. So, well, you know, there, know. there's there's always cool. that kind of constant struggle between specificity and, you know, general, you know, general equipment, right? So, um, I know that we do have another book coming up later this year that I won't talk about because we haven't actually officially announced it yet, um, or well, maybe we have. I don't even know. Whatever. Uh, that has some more specific weapons in it, but it does so in the context of the Clone Wars specifically. So, something else to think about. Okay. Gotcha. Noted. Filed away in the back of the brain and noted. <laughs> well, okay, so the, the latter half of the book is, is I mean, all about running a Clone Wars campaign and then full chapters on Jedi, the Republic, and Separatists and kind of, you know, what they were doing in the war, key figures, you know, stat blocks, stuff like that. All the stuff you need to, to GM a wonderful Clone Wars campaign. Um, but there were several new rules things in this in these chapters that got a lot of us squawking very happily. Um Specifically, rules for squads, which are, I mean, basically for, you know, not for lack of a, to, to generalize it, basically the swarm rules apply to non-beasts, basically, um, which I, I thought to be tremendously useful. Um, and then, uh, of course, mass combat rules. Dude. <laughs> um, these rock. And for those who have not seen this book yet... I mean, it, they're outlining mass combat rules where you, you're allowing movement on, in, in, for lack of a better term, starship scale, but on the ground, moving in squads. And each individual PC or, or character can, can take a role in the squad, similar to the role you would take on a starship. Uh, a lot of transparency there with the starship combat mechanics. I thought it was brilliant. Um, how did you guys stumble across that? Was it something you wanted to do initially? I mean, did you see the need for it? What was y'all's thought process there? So I know I wanted to do mass combat rules from the outset, right? I mean, it's Clone Wars. We've got to have big mass combat. But I've right. never really been terribly happy with any of the mass combat systems that have come before, either in Star Wars or in uh, you know, other games. And I'll admit that I, I had, when I was d doing the design work on this uh, chapter, which I, I did design the entire game mastering chapter, um, when I was doing the design work, I kind of left this off to the side, right? And I was like, you know... I'm going to come up with something and it's going to work, but you know I can't figure out what that's going to be. And then one day, I was driving to pick up lunch by myself. I'm like driving to Wendy's or whatever, right, to pick up lunch. And all of a sudden, it hits me that a like a, a big unit in mass combat could very easily be comparable to like a starfighter, right, or an LAAT. Because what I what I was imagining in my head was how these battles have gone in the Clone Wars uh, animated series, and then also in you know the movies, right. And typically, what you see is you see large chunks of troops, and then you'll see a few vehicles, right, and then occasionally you know you'll see a capital ship off in the distance. So what I wanted was a system that would create that right ratio, right. 
this this correct ratio of you know ground troops to vehicles. And what I came up with was basically adapting the vehicle combat system to treat a battalion or you know a unit uh, like a vehicle. So it's it it seemed to work to me because I figured you know if people can figure out the vehicle rules, they shouldn't have to. Or they, they won't have to figure out a whole new system, right? It'll be second nature to them. They'll have to learn a few new rules, the the way that uh, things work with units, but not a whole lot. And then plus, it'll be really easy for them to have, you know, okay, we have three clone trooper units here, three separatist units here. Okay, here's an LAAT, and here comes a Hailfire tank droid, and then not stumble over it, right? It's very easy to, um, you know, very easy to integrate vehicle combat with, you know, massive ground-scale combat. So that was sort of my eureka moment when I was driving around, that, that basically a, a unit on the battlefield is a vehicle that you get in and you ride around, and then maybe it gets killed around you, or maybe you successfully lead it to, um, to victory. So it's... Uh, I, I hope it works out well. Um, during playtesting, it seemed to work out pretty much like vehicle combat. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's that's pretty much the the long and short of it. Almost everything in the mass combat section was designed to integrate with vehicle combat seamlessly. My only regret is that we don't have uh, nice, like small vehicles, um, ground vehicles. Like you can use the starship battles minis, um, mm-hmm. and then you can use like a, a mini of a single clone trooper to represent an ent- entire battalion. If you right. want to have a battle like with you know. Okay, so we've got our clone troopers and our droids, and each one of the each mini represents a whole battalion. And then here's some starship minis for you know um, space transport, and here comes a uh, you know a starfighter or whatever. Unfortunately, we don't have that scale of mini of like LAATs or Hailfire droids. So unfortunately, it's not the easiest to do if you want to use minis on the battle mat. But I, I think in the long run, it's going to work out okay. Um, Though, of course, you know, like I say, no system designs or no no system survives contact with the players. So we'll see how people feel about it in six months. And, you know, we may revisit in the future. Um, I can't make any promises to that regard, but uh, it'll just depend on whether we need to. Well, dude, I, I know. I mean, I, t- I told a friend about Mass Combat after I first got the book. And for him, that was the clincher. He went out and bought it that day. And we've already had several people that uh, just right here in our little chat room that have said, oh, God, Mass Combat's in it. OK, I'm getting it. Um, and furthermore, you've now presented a challenge to the gamer nation because uh, you know we have a lot of uh, creative people that like to make things, and uh, you know little uh, perhaps um, printable uh, one-inch square uh, tiles, maybe with little tiny little squads of clone troopers in them, or uh, uh, lats or stuff like that, uh, might be a nice little uh, project for the uh, gamer nation to maybe make and uh, allow us to put up on the download section on the web page. And yes. <laughs> Sure. At least until Watsy comes out with something cool and plastic. Uh, <laughs> well, I, so, I definitely can't say anything in that regard. But of course, yeah. Not. My my big hope is that people will actually use it, right? I mean, so many times mass combat systems have been created and just kind of, eh, it's a nice little add-on, but we won't even think about it. So I'm hoping that that if you're running a Clone Wars campaign, that you'll be able to run a large-scale battle using the mass combat rules 
um, with the same frequency that you might run a, a vehicle combat, right? Like I know that typically when I design an adventure for my for my campaign, um, I want to include out of the ten encounters for that level, I want to include one or maybe two vehicle encounters. Right now, I have the option of one or two vehicle encounters, and then maybe a mass combat encounter as well, and then call it. You know that that's a whole adventure. Cool. Well, it was it was definitely one of my favorite features from the book. So. There's there's a lot out of this, and and I guess to kind of bring the the book discussion to a close, it, it it's very clear that the direction you guys were going with it. And for those of you who have not yet purchased the Clone Wars campaign guide, um, I mean, God, I know I, I know I drool over all these books any any time I'm on the air. Anyway, they're all fantastic, but this really has a lot to offer. There there's been a few things you guys have done recently that have have changed the way I think about how I design campaigns, and that. You know, like wow, this new mechanic is simple enough for me to use and would add a lot. Like things like the organizations. Okay, when you guys threw that into the mix, um, equipment upgrades was another absolutely huge thing. And now mass combat. It seems like you know, with the past few books that have been released, there's been something to come out each time to sort of change the way we all play in in a, in a fun way. And um, that's much appreciated, sir. So, for those of you out there that have not bought this book yet, you need to go get it because it is covered in awesome sauce. So, very very nice, very very nice. Well, thank you for talking to us about it as well. <laughs> sure, my pleasure. Cool. Well, Dave? Well, what? What now, sir? I don't know. You tell me. You're running the show here. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm sorry. We, You know, every time you and I are on, we like, you know, Dave doesn't seem to get much word in edgewise. That's not because we talk too much or anything like that. It's just because, you know, I think we think at a higher level that I, th- I just don't think Dave can quite match, you know. But he's learning slowly. You know, that's, that's at least that's nice. <laughs> See? See what happens? See what happens when you anger the Dave? You get that little sound effect and then you're gone. I was nice. Yep. I know you were. So uh, anyway, we're going to go to uh, Fragments from the Rim and take a little bit of a four-minute respite while we, while we do the Alex and Trevor show. So everybody grab your drinks, and we'll be back on the other side. Welcome, Jedi Masters, to Fragments from the Rim. How may we be of service to you today? Hi, this is Alex. And Trevor. This is segment five of Fragments from the Rim. For this segment, I've chosen to discuss the illusion talent from the Altar Talent Tree, which you'll find on page 52 of your KOTOR campaign guide, this is just a really great talent. It says that as a standard action, you can spend a force point to create an illusion that seems perfectly real to anyone who views it. You, you roll make or use the force check. If you beat their will defense, you succeed. It appears real, and they believe it to be real until they physically interact with the illusion, such as touching it, passing through it, shooting it with a blaster, and then it's immediately revealed to be false. And then there's a number of minuses based on size. At low levels, this can be very powerful for the characters of very high use the force check. And just imagine you've got your scoundrel who says, hey, look, there's a bunch of stormtroopers there. And the force user, at that moment, uses illusion, and there's a bunch of stormtroopers there. It's even possible to do this with starships, although the minuses are very large when you're talking about gargantuan, colossal, and colossal frigate. But it is possible to pull it off. So you could have a Star Destroyer appear there. Now... You're going to need a little bit of luck to pull that off, or serenity from the Jedi Master talent tree. But even better, I think, is causing something to be invisible, because then there's no reason to interact with it. Some examples would be to make yourself invisible. 
if they don't see you, there's no reason to physically interact with you, which will not disrupt your illusion. Or even hiding a ship. It's hard, but it is possible. Or imagine a situation, you're running down an alleyway, and you've got a bunch of pursuers behind you. You run into an alleyway, there's two doors. You run through one, and then cause an illusion of a solid blank wall to cover the door you just went through. The pursuers come in, seeing the other door, following logic, they're not going to interact with your illusion. I can really see creative characters having a really great time with this particular talent. Over to you, Trevor. Right, and today I'm going to talk about the Jedi Shadow Talent Tree from the Jedi Knight Talents on page 39 of your KOTOR guide. Essentially, I want to talk about Tainted the Dark Side, but to talk about that, I'll talk about Dark Deception first. Uh, Dark Deception is a really nice talent in the fact that it allows you to cloak your intentions with a veil of anger and hate. When another character attempts to send you through the Force in any way, you can choose to act as though your Dark Side score equals your Wisdom score, and you get Deception as a class skill. So essentially what this means is that for anybody who's not a Sith or not uh, a dark Jedi or a dark anything, you could, for all intents and purposes, pretend to be one. And they would believe it because as far as their force power is telling them, you are. And and it's not that you're a little bit, you're full, you know, your wisdom, and uh, it's all the way up the dark side. And then that's a prerequisite for Taint of the Dark Side. What's really cool about Tainted the Dark Side is you add any one force power with the Dark Side descriptor to your force power suite. And you can use that once per encounter without increasing your Dark Side score. That is a really neat concept because right now a lot of us don't, of course, don't use the Dark Side powers because every time you use it, you get a Dark Side point, and it's, of course, the slippery slope into the Dark Side. With this, you can actually have a Dark Side power and as long as you don't, according to the new errata, uh, use any uh, modifications to it in terms of a, a force point or any other benefits, it doesn't cost you a dark side point. So as a result, for people like me who like to play force users that are kind of in the middle as opposed to exclusively good or exclusively bad, it allows you to dip into the dark side uh, powers list and use them. This talent you can take multiple times and each time you take it I'm guessing you can just choose a different dark side power so that to me is a really nice crunch and really good role playing options and so are we good again Alec? That's it so until next time keep having fun gaming and don't forget if you want to contact us please feel free to send email at order66 underscore fragments at rogers.com and Alex and I will gladly respond to you thank you very much Thank you, Masters, for visiting Fragments from the Rim. Is it me, or there is their audio quality getting better as they go? I think it's getting better. Yeah, a little bit. Yeah, I think it is. Hey, Chris has joined us again. Yeah, thanks. See what happens when That's you anger the monster, the the uh, the master. Oh, forgive me, Master. I'm sorry. Yeah, see, I, I only caught like the last thirty seconds of it, so I really can't comment on the audio quality too terribly much. Yes. But, that was Dave. Uh, Dave punished me. That was uh, that was like a rebuke <laughs> of the highest order, I would say. No, it was good. And and uh, to um, I, I, okay, I'm going to address just a, a couple of things that came up on the forums here in the last week or so. Um, Fragments is a really nice little crunchy bit, and we use it as something that we would call a segue between state and between uh, segments, right? along with Storm Pooper Truitry, and 
are dating with Captain Theros. The problem I think that I had was I was running them together, and so it was taking some time. So, bottom line is they're going to stay in the show, but I'm going to move the dating tips to the end of the program. Is that uh, feasible with you, Mr. Chris? As we produce on the fly? Oh, of course. You're 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 the production guru, dude. I'm just a guy with a mic and too much snark. Snark, 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 snarky, snarty, snarky, McSnarterton. <laughs> I don't know. However that goes. Anyway, so um, now it's time for questions and answers with Jedi Master Thompson. That's me. Day 20 docking bay, hosers. When it don't be making sense, we be making sense of it. There we go. So, so okay. So in in uh, in keeping with the tradition of D twenty docking bay, we had several people ask us lots of questions. I think that we're really geared for you. Wouldn't you agree, there, Mr. Chris? I think I'm a vast majority of them were yes. Uh, people, you know, knew that uh, of course the Jedi Master Rodney Thompson was going to be coming on, and they said, uh, "Great, this is the opportunity to get my awesome rules questions answered." So. They gave them to us for Pete's yeah. sake. They did. Yeah, and the the guys in the uh, chat room absolutely love it when you assign this voice to the gamer nation that you use. <laughs> this uh, blithering, sniveling idiot kind of voice. Oh no, not to the gamer nation. No, no, no. I'm I'm just in a snarky mood tonight. Maybe that's it. I guess it's almost like it's almost like the how are the graphics? How are the graphics? Yes. <laughs> yeah, and that comes straight off of one of my favorite podcasts, Extra Life Radio, by the way. Okay, Good so podcast. now, without further ado, let's let's uh, let's look at Caleb, who emailed this question: How does the new Scoot talent hunker down compared with being prone? It seems like you can basically do the same thing. So, what's the difference between the two? Um. Well, so that's kind of an interesting question. Um. Hunger Down allows you to spend a standard action to basically upgrade your cover, right? From uh, normal cover to improved cover. I guess, arguably, Falling Prone would allow you to do that in most situations, but that's a little bit more of a GM judgment call. The other thing to keep in mind is that uh, if you are prone, you're going to spend an action to stand up. So what I like to think of is, you know, if I move, I get behind cover, and then I hunker down, then the next round, I don't have to spend a round, uh, an action to stand up. I can just, you know, move and go or do whatever I need to do after that. So it's really more about, you know, not having to waste an action on standing up, and then also on getting that very reliable, you know, bump to cover. Okay. Word. Fair enough. Word. Word. To your mother. Okay. Rob Shanty. <laughs> has a question about movement. Is it possible to withdraw diagonally under raw? The rules, which is on page 153, by the way, Saga Edition core rulebook, requires that the first square of your movement must take you out of the opponent's threatened area by the shortest possible route. However, the rules of diagonal movement, page 158, state that moving diagonally costs double and that when moving or counting along a diagonal path, each diagonal... Uh, counts as two squares. 
So the deliberate use of squares in both passages seem to indicate that the withdrawal cannot be done diagonally. This seemed to me to defy common sense, yet my players made a very good argument that the diagonal withdrawal was impossible by juxtaposing these two passages. I ultimately conceded and ruled that the BBEG could not escape the party's um, AOOs by moving diagonally. But I'm still not sure I ruled correctly. And now, Scum and Villainy, there's a new Fringer talent called Sidestep that allows you to reduce the cost of a diagonal move by one square. How, if at all, does this affect the ability to withdraw diagonally? I suppose if it wasn't possible before, it is now with this talent. Well, that's correct. Um, it is true. You buy, you know, basic rules. You cannot withdraw diagonally. Right, your first square of movement has to take you out of the threatened area, and uh, diagonal movement does not do that. That having been said, uh, he is right on the the talent sidestep. Uh, it's basically was put in there to allow that uh, one, you know, diagonal uh, withdraw. So yeah, uh, he is exactly right. Can't withdraw diagonally without that talent. Okay, so that talent now makes it possible to withdraw diagonally without. Yeah, and I don't have a book open in front of me, but I believe it's only the first, um, the first diagonal counts as one. But I might be wrong. Okay, Chris, you were about to say something. I think. Well, no, I, I'm trying to remember myself if it's um, if it, if it's the first diagonal or not. Um, I can look it up real quick though. But I, I don't know. I mean, I. I <sighs> I always thought it was it was kind of an odd thing because it, it seems logically that you I mean you should be able to withdraw diagonally and I mean, but I mean if 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 the way I'd always considered it if it, yeah I mean a diagonal costs two squares of movement but it's still on the map one square so I always thought okay well even though it costs me two squares of movement it's still my first square that I'm moving out of threatened area so I don't know I always I always allowed it but I guess it's something I guess it's something I can house rule from now on I guess I don't know I. I, I kind of like it, Rodney. I mean, what do you, what do you think about movement in general? I mean, I know when Saga was created that Fourth Edition wasn't out yet, and Fourth Edition every square is one. I mean, I mean, I, I, despite your position, I mean, do you have a preferred movement method? I mean, you know, one, one and a half, like it was back in RCR, or I mean, what do you? I mean, what are your what are your thoughts on that? How about hex? <laughs> yes. How about hex? Uh, no. To be perfectly honest, if I had to do, do over again, I would probably just go with one square as one squared. It's uh, one of those things that has turned out to be, um, w- once you've played that way, it's kind of hard to go back. So it's one thing I always have to really focus on when I run my Friday uh, Star Wars game. I can see full-on gamer going uh, totally crazy in the uh, uh, in the. Well, he's saying reach, 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 and this has been the, the thing because it's like, okay, if if that's the ruling, then technically I can't I can't attack into a diagonal square either because it's two squares away. That is not true. Um, I'm trying to look for the uh, the actual text in here, although it is avoiding me. But basically, the way it works is you threaten your adjacent squares. You can always attack your adjacent squares, and uh, you effectively are uh, unable to withdraw because it costs two squares of movement to move diagonally, even though it is, you know, an adjacent square. Um, so there. Yeah. So just there. Say, yeah, just, so, just say, yeah, your mom, if you want to, you know. I'm not going to say your <laughs> mom. I want, I want to quote the actual text, but unfortunately it is avoiding me right now. Nah, that's all right. We'll move on. 
to fox uh, here it is sorry oh, sorry there. uh with a melee weapon you can strike an enemy in a square you threaten small and medium creatures threaten the squares adjacent to them a diagonal square is still adjacent to you even though you cost two to move into it oh see look uh, at that uh, okay well that that was in that. the attack with a melee weapon section in the uh combat chapter see uh, so that puts a lid on that okay he's a walking wiki right there that guy and Fulon's like, well, the literal text states you must go into your first square, not one square. I don't see the difference between the two. But. Oh, boy. Here we go. Whether, whether yeah. it's unclear in the text or not, the intention is that you cannot withdraw diagonally. There that, that's the intention. So we have it written. It is the intention. That is it. Cool. Cool. Well, so that makes, uh, and that, heck, that does make Sidestep one hell of a talent. <laughs> got, got to get it. <laughs> oh, heck, yeah. I like it. I like it a lot. I like it I like a lot. See, there's Jinx. He's going to make Coke. Okay. Uh, jinx, Jinx. Blot back on Tapax. All right. <laughs> Faxworthy has a question about Scum and Villainy's modification rule, and he would like to know this. How many times can you strip a weapon? I mean, seriously. On page 37, the rules say unless a method of adding more upgrade slots specifies it can be applied more than once to the same piece of gear, it can't. Then on page 38, it says, each element that is stripped add, adds one upgrade slot to that piece of equipment, which could mean every time you strip an element, or could mean every element strip choice, uh, strip choice is worth one slot individually. So, this is further confusing because if the note on page 38 is meant to override the general rules on page 37, why does page 38 later say you can strip a weapon in one of five ways? It seems to me that it's intended... You can only get one upgrade slot from either stripping or increasing equipment size rather than being able to gain five upgrade slots by stripping a weapon or or one by increasing its size. Am I wrong? That was a very poorly worded email. I'm sorry. <laughs> it's okay. I think I get the gist of it. Um, the basic question seems to be, can you strip a weapon more than once? Um, the answer is no by raw. But if you wanted to allow it, I think you could as a special case in your game. Um, the intention is that basically you can recover two um, upgrade slots from any given weapon, right? Uh, I, I know the language is a little bit confusing, but basically you can get one from stripping out a certain section or a certain attribute, uh, and you can get another from increasing its size. Gotcha. There you go. So and that's that. Well, that makes sense. And so you can't strip more than one thing off of a weapon. Right. That's the that that's the way the basic rule works. Gotcha. But if I wanted to increase the size and strip something, I could do that and get the two upgrade slots for it. Right. Otherwise, I think what ends up happening is that you get too caught up in the, well, if I strip this, this, and this out, that <laughs> that gets me. Oh, mercy. Me, guys. And there he goes. Sad. And he's sick. He said he was sick. I've been, I've been doing good all night, and then now I have choked to death on my own sickness. But anyways, um, that keeps you from being able to strip out you know, four different elements, get four different uh, upgrades, and then suddenly your weapon doesn't actually behave anything like it used to. The upgrade system is designed to be just that, an upgrade system, not a complete overhaul system. system. Now, that having been said, if you run a game where your players are really into the tech side of things and where you really want to allow that, I think it's probably okay. Um, ostensibly, the upgrade slot system should be balanced on its own so that if you allowed for multiple strippings of a weapon, it should be okay. Um, what I would say is if you're going to do that, 
you shouldn't be able to uh, strip the same part of the weapon more than once, right? So you can't reduce its damage down twice, for example. Cool. That makes sense. Okay, if you're ready for machine gun action when it comes to Elias Windrider, he sent us a bevy of questions. Sure. Okay, so first, equipment modification. Using these rules from Scum and Villainy, when, a, when stripping weapons for upgrade slots, can you strip the lethal setting off a blaster and keep stun, or can you strip the stun setting off? Or can you only you can... strip the sun, sun setting off? Didn't we talk about this before? Yeah, we gave our opinion, but it's been a hotly debated topic. Okay. You can only strip the sun, stun setting off. Stun is a an additional add-on to a weapon, or at least we treat it that way. Gotcha. There you go. From the man himself. Okay, so... That makes terribly good sense. <laughs> yeah, absolutely it does. Okay, so the superior tech weapon trait superior capacity says the weapon's power pack provides double capacity. Does this mean it can't be applied to slug throwers and, more importantly, grenade launchers? I would rule that it would work for grenade launchers, but could see them potentially being deliberately excluded for balance reasons. Was this the case? Um, it's not for any balance reason, but rather the idea that what you're doing is you're making your weapon more efficient, and thus it draws uh, less energy from the power pack to produce the same result. So yes, by raw, it is only intended for power weapons that use a power pack. But once again, if you want to allow it for all weapons, it's not any particular balance reason so much as it is a an in-universe logic reason. Right. Gotcha. A more efficient weapon isn't going to use half of a bullet or... <laughs> Basically, yeah. A rocket. Gotcha. Right, right, right. That's a good point. Okay, so erotic clarifications. Number three question, by the way. Erotic clarifications made it so that you cannot score a critical hit and more importantly, deal double damage with area attacks. When using a blaster cannon, which technically is an area weapon against a character, do you do double damage on a crit? What about splash that affects adjacent characters? Since Force Unleashed added extended critical range heavy weapons to the elite trooper, this could be an easy thing to do. Uh, nope. If it's, a, if it's an area attack of any kind, you cannot crit. You, you you can, you know, the natural 20 is an automatic hit, but you do not do double damage. Double damage, yeah. So there you go. I think that's what he really wanted. What? You mean I can't get double damage on my 3 die 12? This sucks, man. Yeah. Okay, uh, I have a softball question coming in from, um, actually, I forgot who it was. It might have been Hero OT Beta, but I'm, I don't remember. Anyway, it came in by voicemail. Here it is. Hello, Radio GMs. This is Outlaw Night Zero, and I was wondering, the Clone Wars campaign guide, worth a buy, worth a look? Um, let's get your opinion on the show, hopefully this week. Um, yeah, I hope to hear from you. Bye. Worth the buy? <laughs> well, I, I, well, I guess he did. I guess no one knew what the show was going to be about. Um, so hopefully, after this show, he'll have made that. <laughs> we've made our opinions hopefully known. Hopefully, we've given yeah, him. This the is clearly reason. not a question for me. Right? <laughs> yeah. Is it worth the buy? I think your response would be, "Duh, uh, duh. Uh, of course, it's worth the buy." Um, exactly. Uh, okay. Exactly. <laughs> wow. Okay. Now, Zert simply wants you to ask. Wants to ask you, why do you pwn life so much? As a follow up, how can I likewise pwn life? Wow, that's uh, that's a great question. I think the answer is actually that, and that's my answer. 
Oh, man, I've, I'm glad I wrote that down. Thanks, Rodney. Dude, that was fantastic. Word, man. That's a write-on, man. That's a write-on. Forest! Okay, sorry. Here we go. Paul Klein had this most likely unanswerable question to ask. What is the possibility of a second printing of the core rulebook with all the errata incorporated into it? Ooh. Um, unfortunately, that is not something I can comment on. And oh. it's a question I do see come up a lot, and it's not something I'm ignoring. It's just, unfortunately, one of the very few topics that I cannot comment on one way or the other. Ah, uh, yes. So Fair enough. Like a musician who they don't want to be heard, your bow has been waxed. <laughs> Sorry oh, hey, Donovan that. has a question coming in on the uh, chat room. He says, uh, Rodney... In a Star Wars Saga Edition Raw, how much wood could a woodchuck chuck if a woodchuck could chuck wood? Well, a woodchuck would chuck a chuck of wood if a woodchuck could chuck wood. Nice. <laughs> wow. See? So there we go. See? Answering, the, answering the tough questions. See, and Heart yeah. of Judeo could only come up with 2D6. <laughs> 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 That's just beautiful right there. That's just beautiful. Okay. Well, hey, you know what? An hour and a half later, hour and 40 minutes later, we've reached the end of our program. We oh, have wow, Aww. really crazy! Can you believe that? That's amazing. Now, Rodney, you going to stick? Uh, you going to stick with us for the post show? Uh, I can do that, um, and maybe let some of the people in the chat room ask a couple of questions. Wow! Look at that! Look at that! Wow! That's, now that's watch generosity them, now just right there. Watch them roll on in while we get to all the good <laughs> glory to end the show. So, wow! With that, oh wait a second, this is your line. Yes, it is. But that's okay. With that, Gamer Nation, thank you for listening. And uh, again, before I leave you, if you guys have any questions for the D20 Docking Bay, any show requests, of course, email us, gmchris at d20radio.com, gmdavid20radio.com. Or, of course, call the Lusa line like our, uh, our, our good friend did, who just gave a, a wonderful question for Rodney Thompson. And, uh, Dave, what is that Lusa line? Area code 206-600-5872 or L-U-S-A. And uh, also, of course, go to d20radio.com slash forums and sign on. Become a member of the Gamer Nation. Speak your mind. And I've said my mind now, so thank you for listening, guys. Thank you, Mr. Thompson, for coming on and gracing us with your presence yet again. And I wish you all peace, love, and good gaming. And keep those dice rolling. Hey, everyone. This is Montgomery Glam here at the Star Wars Special Edition Prequels re-re-re-showing. And I'm here with some of the members of the band. Announce yourselves to the bands out there. I'm Tabs McGee. I'm the guitarist for the band. And you, sir? I'm Skins. I play the drums. Ah, really glad to hear both of you all are here. We're going to get into the theaters here in a second, but I have to ask you guys, do you spend any time listening to the Order 66 podcast? What's the Order 66 podcast, man? I never listen to the Order 66 podcast. D20 Radio, where gamers roll.
www.d20radio.com. This podcast and related websites are not endorsed by Lucasfilm Limited, 20th Century Fox, or Wizards of the Coast, and are intended for entertainment and informational purposes only. The official Star Wars site can be found at StarWars.com. The official Wizards of the Coast site can be found at Wizards.com. Star Wars, the Star Wars logo, D20 logo, D20 system references, all named pictures of Star Wars characters, vehicles, and any other Star Wars related items are registered trademark and or copyright of Lucasfilm Limited, Wizards of the Coast, or their respective trademark and copyright holders. All original content of this podcast and its related website, including graphical, textual, audio, and visual information, is the intellectual property of the Order 66 podcast. Dating Tips, with everyone's favorite Zeltron smuggler, Captain Theros. You know how to turn me on, oh, you got it going on. Baby, you can make my day. Greetings, party beings. It's your good friend, Captain Theros, coming at you once again from the mid-rim, representing for Zeltros. We have a new question on the Galactic Dating Tips Com frequency from our good friend Shadow Acid, which is a cool name. I like that Shadow Acid. And he says, quite simply, he asks, I think that my wife may be spending too much time alone with the protocol drug. Should I be worried? Well, Shadow Acid, only you know how much attention you may or may not be paying to your wife. But as to whether or not to be worried, that would all depend on which tool appendages she's purchased for the droid, if you know what I mean. I mean, if she's just buying tool appendages to replace your essential functionality with that of the droid, then perhaps you should be worried. But uh, that's all I got for you this time. Hopefully that's shed some light on uh, some steps you need to take. Maybe paying a little bit more attention to your wife would be in order, but uh, only you know that. So hopefully that's helpful. If anyone else has any of their uh, galactic dating tip questions they would like to answer, just send them on over to my com frequency on the D20 radio boards, and I will get to them just as soon as possible. There you go, party beings. Have a good one, and I will talk to you next time. This is Captain Heroes, out. Daydreaming with GM Dave. Ah, okay. I love that music. It's very soothing. So first and foremost, I need to tell the guy who wrote the equipment chapter in the Clone Wars campaign guide to please come off the ledge. I know you worked your ass off. You gave your heart and soul to this project. You gave up all your personal time to hit a bunch of deadlines and pretty much thought it was the best work of your life, only for Thompson not to remember your name. I feel you, bro. Dang. I, I feel you, bro. Yeah, I, I think I remember all the authors' names. I just can't remember who or what. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. Okay, so first and foremost, my list has changed. Oh, okay. 
Yes. Um, unfortunately, as much as I hate to let her go, Cote de Pablo is off the list. Deborah Messing moves to number three, and Carrie Underwood has now supplanted her as a firm number two behind Danica Patrick. How about that? Fair enough. Is that all right? Yeah, that's all right. I'm fair with it. All right. Very good. Very good. All right. All right. So football season's over, huh, Rodney? As far as I'm concerned. Yeah, thank you. Oh, so maybe dear. we should actually answer some. Let me answer some of these chat room questions before they scroll off of my screen. Unfortunately, dude, they are scrolling by at a pretty uh, astounding rate. Yes. Cool. So okay, uh, let me go ahead and start and answer a few that I can see right now before I forget. Um, Shibuta asked, "Will Lermans be statted out?" The answer is yes. Um, Merkaba Jedi asked, Hey Rodney, are we going to see Space Troopers in, the, in any of the announced supplements? The answer is yes. Um, Damien Sulta asked, Simple question, could you help me understand the grapple states and actions? The answer is no. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Uh, let's see here. Oh, so Zerissa actually asked a question that I am willing to answer but it probably won't be the answer that her son wants to hear she asked Rodney my son wants to know how to become a game designer I am serious not to mention proud of him well first of all you should be proud of him because uh, game design is a noble profession that only the greatest men of our society have men and women of our society have managed to aspire to (laughs) sorry about that Um, so I can't really say how your son might become a game designer but I can tell you how it happened to me if we have time Go ahead, we got plenty of time. So, it started for me um, when I was a kid. I was basically constantly designing games for my brother and I to play. And then when I got to college, I started a fan website, and I basically put out uh, a bunch of material for the D6 Star Wars and then the D20 Star Wars uh, game once it came out. Over time, I got noticed by Chris Perkins, who is now uh, one of the guys I work with here at Wizards, and he gave me a chance to write some Star Wars work. I wrote the Hero's Guide. And then after that, I started freelancing for other companies. Um, I freelanced for about six years, and then finally got hired at Wizards of the Coast. Now, what you can take from all that is that the best ways to um, become a game designer are first play a lot of games. And when I say play a lot of games, I don't just mean play a lot of role-playing games or a lot of video games. I mean play a lot of everything, right? Even if it's games that you don't particularly like or genres that you don't like, play them anyways because there is something to be learned from every type of game. Uh, I know that something that's improved my own game design drastically is in the last two years I've started playing a lot more card games and board games. And they they can teach you a lot of things about game theory that you, you can't just pick up on your own. Um, the second piece of advice I can give is the same advice that was given to me by Star Wars author Michael Stackpole uh, at a Gen Con many years ago. And that advice is, if you want to be a writer, you should write. Uh, because a lot, of, a lot of times people want to be writers and they end up not writing. So I, I would encourage your son to write as much as possible, to take classes that... Um, teach critical writing and, and you know writing skills. And then lastly, um, I would recommend not being afraid to put yourself out there, right? 
Um, everyone has to be rejected before they can be accepted, and that's an unfortunate uh, aspect of you know the way that our industry works. But basically, if your son thinks he's ready for game design, tell him to start freelancing for other companies, start freelancing for uh, magazines, uh, not only Dragon and Dungeon for Wizards of the Coast, but I'm sure there's several other magazines out there. And the best thing you can do is um, is to keep trying. Right. Just always make sure that if you think you've got a good idea, put it down and on paper and then try and find someone to pick it up. Because even if they don't like it, then you'll learn something from it. So um, that's, that's really all there is to it, right, is is writing for you know the various magazines that are out there and then getting your start that way. And eventually you can work yourself up, work your way up to doing you know, web articles and then eventually books as well. So yeah. if, if you're talking about RPG design now, if you're talking about video game design, um, I don't have as much advice for you, but I would say the best thing I can tell you is to learn as much as you can about game theory as possible. Right. Cool. Awesome. Yeah. See, it's easy. All right. So Asa TJ <clears throat> says, what do you think about starting mass combat units with step down the attrition track to represent smaller forces? Uh, I think that's fine. Um, the other thing you can do is to uh, give other units advantages or treat that as a, you know, basically treat the smaller unit as a disadvantaged unit. Um, and the other thing you can also do is uh, just the, the, the scale of units are left flexible on purpose. So you could just say that um, the standard unit size is whatever size your your small unit is, and then give all the other units advantages or um, make them from higher level characters, give them more hit points, etc. So, yeah, I, I think that's a fine solution, but I think there's also several other solutions you could go with as well. Cool. Seikos asks if you need a slave. He'll do anything you want, and you don't even need a, a whip. Sorry, I don't roll that way. All right. <laughs> uh, any supplement to the Null Arcs? I would not be surprised to see them in an upcoming book, though I can't say anything specifically. Um, there's a certain point where, um, let's see, how do I say this? There, there's there are degrees of granularity, right? And at a certain point, you have, well, okay, we got the arc troopers. Well, we need the guys that are more independent and more skilled for the arc troopers. It depends on whether or not we can find a good use for them in the game, but. I mean, I certainly don't have any reason to not put them in a book. It's just a matter of finding a good place for them. Cool. Uh, any truth to the rumor that you are soon to be on the $20 bill? No truth to that rumor, I'm afraid. Okay. I will be on the new $2 bill being issued, though. Oh, very nice. Oh, very nice. Yes. Okay. Also, that is a lie. Oh, oh, oh. Okay. <laughs> just so you know. Bummer, bummer. Okay, and um, let's see. Wow. There's, there's several here. Merkaba's got one. He says, um, when looking at squads, their ranged attacks have a splash effect. Would that affect the squad who fired it if their opponent was adjacent? Or would they be immune to their own splash since it's not actually an explosion? Yeah, no, we, we definitely say that you can exclude um, your allies from these attacks and it's basically the same with yourself right like you don't have to hurt yourself with it basically the splash part of it is essentially to rep represent that you're covering a wider area with your attack okay awesome. 
Any thought to compilation volumes like Ultimate Alien Anthology? Um, that one specifically, I'm a little more reluctant to do because I think we can give more attention to the species as we put them out, you know, in in smaller chunks like we're doing now. Um, but you know, I, I'll never say never, right? I just don't think that right now it makes the most mechanical sense, right? Like I think we will produce better species, more interesting species, if we put them out, you know, in groups of eight or ten over the course of the next, you know, however many books. Okie doke. Uh, what else do we get? Oh, how much content do you actually get from users? Uh, none. Okay. We we can't accept any unsolicited content. Um, and there's, I mean, I, I can obviously look and see what people are interested in, but unfortunately, there's a lot of legal issues with um, user content, right? So that's why... When people email me and say, hey, I have this great idea for an adventure, my first response is, well, don't tell me about it because it might be a great idea, but, you know, I could get me or you in trouble if I hear about it, and then we put something out later. It's just this whole legal issue, right? I mean, it, it's, it stinks, right? Because there's a lot of really talented people out there with a lot of really good ideas, and you can't use a lot of that. So what I usually do is I usually redirect them to our web team, uh, who have a little bit more flexibility in what they can accept. So, unfortunately, I can't do much with it, but I usually try and get them pointed towards the web team. And then, you know, there have been a few cases, like like Patrick Stutzman is a good example. He wrote a lot of uh, web stuff for us before I gave him the shot at the, um, you know, uh, at the writing for a book. So, you know, it, it's one of those deals where I might not be able to use user content, but some people can you know so that, that's how you make your transition sometimes from fan to designer it's just by designing cool awesome um Destrayeth had a general question um he said uh how much can we expect fourth edition mechanics to trickle into saga he noticed a couple talents guardian strike comes to mind that basically slapped down fourth edition style marks he was wondering is the trend going to continue he hopes it does if it's a good idea and if it's a good fit sure right like that guardian strike is a good example where you know, I looked at it and I was like, yeah, this is a mechanic that, you know, doesn't really say D&D, doesn't really say Star Wars, but it makes sense for a, a character like a Jedi to have something like this. But there are other D&D mechanics that I'm not interested in porting over, right? So there, it's, it's, it's one of those deals where if I see something that I think would work in Star Wars, I'm not going to ignore it, but I tend to design for Star Wars first. And then if I'm designing for Star Wars and then I say, you know, this is actually kind of similar to this other mechanic. Let me see how that works. Then I might port it over, but I I tend to approach from the Star Wars end of the spectrum rather than from the D&D end, if that makes sense. Cool. Um, any chance we're going to see species-based talents? Not talents. Okay. <laughs> And that is all I will say. Okay. <laughs> okay. Paul Klein wanted to know, what have you concluded after asking what races we want statted in the new books? Um, I wasn't terribly surprised by most of them, although there were a few that jumped up in popularity, and I was like, really? Wow, that's kind of surprising. Because you never, I, I never would hear about people saying, oh, these are great species or what have you. So, um I have concluded that the desires of the fan base match up with mine almost perfectly. Um, 
and uh, that was very reassuring. And when I when I was designing the outline for a, a few books that are coming up, right, I was like, well, okay. And I was, <clears throat> excuse me, I was thinking about putting these um, these species in there, and now I know that the fans want them, so that worked out nicely. Cool. Cool. Fiddleback is asking, what have you done with his meeples? I don't have his meeples. I only have the animeeples that I got with my copy of Agricola. Oh, yes. <laughs> Preacher23 wants to know, Rodney, uh, what would be the one book you'd like to write that has not been planned yet? Ooh. I can't answer that because... Um, <laughs> not, be- not because I don't want to, but rather because... Anything I say here would be something you know that I know would never be be uh, be made. And at this point, I kind of get my way, and so um, <laughs> I'm hoping that any future books that I want to write, I get to because that's kind of how it's worked out so far. <laughs> hey, there you go, man. Yeah, it's it's worked out pretty nicely, and it seems like everyone else is liking the same things that I like, so that's good. Heck yeah. Ooh, Markaba's got a good question. This is a right, good question. <clears throat> what determines whether a race will get their own page in the races section of a, of a book, and which ones get the NPC block in the back, or like you know the the other races like the Barabel and Scum and Villainy? Well, uh, the races that get put in the front for the players are ones that we feel are both iconic to the setting, or are the species of very iconic characters for a setting and also would make an interesting player species. The ones that you see, and, and those are determined first, I might add, right? So when I'm doing the outline for a book, I say, okay, these are the you know eight to ten species that we're going to do, and I lay them out specifically. The ones that end up in sidebars are the ones that are not on that list, but are also uh, needed for uh, NPC stat blocks, and we want to include those stats as well. Um, that doesn't mean that you know we think less of those species, but rather that they we didn't want to highlight them necessarily in that book, and that's why down the line you might see a an updated and expanded version of those species rules down the line. Gotcha. That makes sense. Yeah, because I usually so I, several of my players, one in particular, uh, um, wanted to play um, uh, a bit recently, and I was like, uh, I don't know. <laughs> The, the bith are the bith are good. Um, I, I I understand what people's issue is with the bith intelligence uh, skill intelligence based skill check thing. Um, it all that one is one that depends heavily on your uh, definition of encounter. And I think that if and when the bith show up again in player format, we will be more clear about that. Okay. Okay, so can we vary from Star Wars Saga? Uh, sure. Fiddleback asks, what's your favorite non-Watsi role-playing game? Ooh, that's tough. Um, non-Wizards role-playing game. And I assume that we're, we're going to exclude West End Games, D6 Star Wars as well? I would probably say that's, yeah. yeah. I think that would be an obvious answer, yeah. <laughs> um, let me think. I like Deadlands a lot, uh, oh. because I'm a huge Western junkie. Um... Let's see here. Uh, there's a, a little indie role-playing game called Inspectors that I like, which is a kind of a riff on Ghostbusters that's a lot of fun. Um, 
Savage Worlds is a nice, uh, nice system. Uh, although I don't get to play a lot of it. Um, I also, I, I have to say, I'm a big Mutants and Masterminds fan. Partially wow. because I'm a big comic book fan, but also because I think you know Steve Kenson and the guys at Green Ronin have done an awesome job both with that yeah. game and the product line. So I like Mutants and Masterminds a lot. Um, I don't get to play it very much, and uh, I don't get to run it as much as I'd like to because it, it requires a little bit more of a time commitment than I'm uh, right. able to afford right now okay. just because the, the system for generating NPCs is a little bit more intricate. Uh, than I have time for right now, but I, I ran, uh, I actually ran a one-shot uh, Mutants and Masterminds game last year at uh, a local gaming convention. So yeah, it, I'm a big fan of that one. Cool. And we, uh, the band, by the way, the um, right before the outro fired, and you had the uh, the the yeah. uh, the band was a Mutants and Masterminds Friday night Skype game that I was invited to sit in with last night uh, or Friday night. And um, the band members of the um, that are also super, you know, superheroes recorded <laughs> that bumper. It was really, uh, it was really funny. Actually, it was just hilarious um, with the what these guys are doing and and uh, and whatnot. So I really uh, enjoyed that quite a bit. And now all of a sudden, I've started learning about mutants and masterminds because it sounded really fun. So there you have it. It's a cool system. Yeah. You didn't. You didn't tell me you were digging it, dude. I'll throw down a game like tomorrow. Well, I was digging <laughs> it. I mean, I've been digging it for a grand total of about thirty-six hours now. I really hadn't uh-huh. messed with it at all. But it's you, like twelve hours, and you pretty much got into something, dude. You're, you're. I mean, you know, you're there. So you know, you have that level of, of faculty. Oh sure. <laughs> yeah. All right. So two hours into this, and I think we're going to cut off the questions from the. Thank you very much, chat room, for just going bananas with questions and we really appreciate it <laughs> thanks rodney for taking the time to answer them for pete's sake dude I, oh, well, thank no you very much for coming on we, we love it when you come on it's uh again uh, awesome to see um to see this level of uh, I, I i wouldn't say uh communication well definitely communication but dedication from a game designer to the community and to the fans and i for one appreciate it thank you yeah, no problem it's always fun Beautiful. Look, all the thank yous coming in from the chat room for you. How about... Yeah, Seikos oh, is saying, nice. what is the name of the show? And that's something that oh, we man. always, always just open up to the chat room for being able yeah. to, to come up with the, uh, the uh, you know, the end of the show. And I didn't go off on too many tangents today, so it's going to be tough. Uh, it's going to be tough. Naming oh. the show. I do want to, I do want to say, okay, we have some, we have some rules about uh, content that is... Uh, not allowed on our forum, and one of them is politics. But I want to transcend that whole thing just for a second and uh, and uh, acknowledge the fact that we do have a new president, and um, I wish him Godspeed because man, he's got a mess to deal with. Word. And Word. I'll leave it at that. I won't let you guys know what my politics are or anything like that. But we'll see what happens. Very very interesting. <laughs> All right, gentlemen, I'm going to uh, have to bail. Unfortunately, my uh, illness is starting to claim the better of me. So uh, I appreciate you having me on. It was a lot of fun. Thanks to all the people in the chat room that showed up, too. That was uh, that was great. I wish I had more time to answer some more questions. Maybe we'll have to do a uh, quick Q&A one-shot one, uh, one week. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that'd be great. And then sometime before Order 60, I mean, uh, Episode 66, which should be coming your way somewhere around Cinco de Mayo, I think we planned, but we'll see. Mm-hmm. 
Sounds great. Dude, All right, get Rodney. some rest. Again. Get well, man. Yes, thank you very much. I will try. You guys have a good night, okay? All righty. Take care. Bye-bye. And away he goes, the man himself. Man. The man himself. I'll tell you what. So we've got, look at all this thing. Um, get in the bank, the tank. Many Bothans died for this. Um, somebody put in living in an Obama nation. That was actually fairly, um, I don't know. It was fairly witty. Let's clone Rodney. I like that. Let's clone Rodney. Grand Rodney. Clone, Grand Clone Rodney. Of, <laughs> oh, my goodness. That's not bad. Grand Rodney of the Republic? Grand, uh, yeah. That's not bad, Merkaba. That is not bad at all. Oh. Nice. Oh... Grand. grand, yeah. Oh, I, I, we figured so, it was so, grand. Yeah, consi- considering this is like the Clone Wars talk, I think Grand Grand Rodney of the Republic is pretty darn good. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, that wins. That's it. That's it. Grand Rodney of the Republic. Grand Rodney of the Republic. <laughs> Beautiful. All right, so who's everybody rooting for in the Super Bowl? To uh, um, uh, this, uh, oh, excuse me, it's a registered trademark now, so they could actually extort money out of me. Who does everyone like in the big game for Sunday? In the big American football game that's coming up next weekend. Yes, the NFL championship game. Brr, the Mets. Harvey <laughs> Julia, my gosh! I'll tell you what, that would be even more amazing than the amazing Mets in the '69 series. Yeah, Mercado was like the Separatists. I'm rooting for the Separatists. I'm rooting for the Separatists too. You know. Oh, that's that's hilarious. Yep. Dude, okay. So, are we gonna have a cast next Sunday? Uh, I don't know how we're gonna do it because I'm um I'm having a I'm having a Super Bowl slash birthday party at my house next week. No, you. Are. Which I I still don't know if you're coming or not. I don't know either. <laughs> see, there you go. Um, I know. I think I think it's safe to say that we won't have the cast Sunday. At the very least, maybe we can hit it up on a weeknight after, or you know, I, I'm, I'm, my worry is I might be out of town that weekend. Right. Um, uh, if if I'm not, we can do it Saturday before. But um, if I am, we can we can do it in in the Monday or Tuesday following. Right. Um, yeah. So we'll see we'll see how it plays out, and um, the the following weekend, which is going to be like February the eighth, I can almost guarantee we won't have a cast. Um. Just with all kinds of out of town issues, and I have a giant thing uh, at work that begins Monday. That's right, you do. Yep. Mm. The monster known as AB. Oh. So you know, yeah, it seems it always seems like we wind up having a Tuesday cast because yes, my daughter has soccer practice on Monday, and I can't do podcast Monday night. So. Yes. Well, that's that's acceptable. So yeah, but Dono, yeah. Figure uh, to answer your question on the forums, Donovan. Yeah, f- uh, don't don't plan on a cast this Sunday. It's you know it's super. Uh, excuse me. It's um, uh, big football game Sunday. So uh, yeah, yeah. It's It'll, it definitely won't be Sunday night. Super Bowl Sunday. Have you encoded the title yet? I haven't even no. I haven't even stopped recording 
Okay, Asa TJ just 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 offered this title up. I don't know if I like it better than Grand Rodney of the Republic, but Rodney Thompson can withdraw diagonally. <laughs> can we change it to say Rodney Thompson and Chuck Norris can withdraw diagonally? <laughs> <laughs> Chuck Norris can withdraw diagonally. I don't know. Uh, I'm I'm still going for Grand Rodney of the Republic. That's too good. Yeah, me too. And with that, I think I'm going to type up the uh, the 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 the, the uh, write up, and I'm going to get off the air, okay. so I can spend a little bit of time with my dinner before it gets too much later. All right. Well, not a problem. So um, the next question is: We have like 50 or some such uh, people already on the Facebook group, and they're asking uh, if you're ever going to show up. <sighs> you know. Okay. I, I will mean, make you a deal. I will make you a deal. I will, right now, I, when, like when we're finished, I'm going to go get a bowl of this incredible um, chicken stew that my wife makes and has made a giant thing of because for some reason she thought the Super Bowl was this week instead of next week, which flabbergasted me because she is actually a decent football fan. She just got her dates confused. Mm-hmm. And um, so she was making this, and um, I'm going to get a big bowl of it, and I'm going to come back here, and I'm going to sign up to Facebook, and then... I'm gonna get on the D20 Radio and Facebook Network, and then I don't want to hear another word about it. Is that is that acceptable, Gamer Nation? Mm, well, we'll figure. <laughs> See, they push you, they push you a minute. I mean, they push you, they push you an inch, they push you another inch. Pretty soon, you're a mile down the road. I know. Pretty soon, I'll have like you know, I'll be on Twitter next. I Twitter. <laughs> oh, dude, I don't know. You know, Twitter is uh, Twitter is Twitter. I I don't do that much Twitter. I I I, I Twitter. I uh, you know when I get ready to podcast and that's about it. Oh yeah, Fiddleback says the keeper of the dice mag commands you. That's almost like that almost came just like straight out of. Uh... Oh dang it! What is it? They're standing over the bed. The power of Christ compels you. The power of Christ. Uh, what is that? Ex- uh, Exorcist. Exorcist. That's what it is. Thank you. Fiddleback, I am the keeper of the dice bag. No, you're not, actually, because he was appointed the keeper of the dice bag on the Facebook group because you weren't there. So we had to have a keeper of the dice bag. Well, I don't understand the reference, see, because I'm not on Facebook, so I guess I could go, all right, all right, I'll get on Facebook. You'll get a keeper of something because everyone's a keeper of something. I'm the keeper <laughs> of the radio waves. He's the keeper uh, of the uh, of the dice bag, and uh, 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 Joe is the keeper of the superpowers. So. Probably be the keeper of the GM screen. So there you go. Okay, now what about Dark Knight not getting nominated for a Best Picture? That pissed me pissed off. Pissed me off, man. Don't get God. Don't get me started on that. That pissed me off. You know what? He got all these technical awards. You know what? And you know, okay, listen. Heath Ledger's performance was great. He deserved the Oscar nod. But at the same time, the sad fact that he passed away, they're going to give it to him, okay? It could have been a subpar performance, and they probably still would have given it to him, okay? But he did deserve it, okay? It was, it was, it was worth it. But, dude, it, when, when is Hollywood going to – no, excuse me. When is the Academy going to recognize that just because a film happens to be a mega blockbuster or an action film or a superhero movie or whatever, that it's still proper film art, that that's okay? Whenever they make that leap, I'll be a happy, happy man. Lord of the Rings is about as close as they got to getting it right like that <sighs> with a super blockbuster, you know? And they nominated the wor- – and, and furthermore, they gave Best Picture to the worst of the three films. I mean, yeah. listen, Return of the King was great, but the first two were better. So, 
<sighs> Woof. I don't know. Right? Woof. One thing I did love, Robert Downey Jr. got nominated for Tropic Thunder. <laughs> 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 Which is... um fantastic <laughs> yep and oh something we forgot to mention off the top of the show is that minnie's mayhem i mm. think was going to get recorded today uh, today or tomorrow i think yes so i can't wait for that i cannot wait for that and also gamer nation begin to contact me if you wish to have a guest uh role or spot or something on a new production that is going to be entitled geekapalooza which is going to have the same name as our con. And it's uh, it's going to be a podcast about nothing. Geek stuff? Yeah. Just whatever it is that we want to talk about. So it'll cover geek stuff, but it's going to transcend geek and a little bit of, well, I would say testosterone. You know, geek and testosterone don't often collide in the same sentence, but... Depends on the geek. It depends on the geek. That's right. So we will talk women. We will talk sports. We will talk hunting and fishing and NASCAR. And we will talk computers. You lost me with that. You lost me with the NASCAR. Hey, every once in a while, you got to talk a little NASCAR. We will talk about computer stuff, video games, and music, and rock and roll. And we will talk about things. Movies. Things? Yes. Art. Well, maybe not art, but maybe. I mean, I'd consider music art. Movies, art. Very nice. Yes, you know. Yeah, as a cat says, you know, we pretty much could name the podcast Another Left Turn. That's a marvelous idea. Yeah. We could name another it. left turn. Another left turn. We make another left turn. Yep. <laughs> so anyway, yeah, we'll just. Well, we're gonna talk about it all because I love lists. Ah <laughs> uh, yes. They're making a left turn. Uh, see, look, Alpha Ant is still waiting for me to list something that he doesn't care about. Mm. Daydreaming the podcast. That's pretty much it, isn't it? In a nutshell. Pretty much. You nutshell. should call it Dave Dreaming. I, yeah, and I thought about Dave Dreaming. That was kind of cool, you know, but anyway. Oh, <laughs> man. I'll tell you what. It's going to be fun. Whatever it is, we're just going to talk about whatever it is that pops up into our head. And somebody already asked me if if, uh, if Extra Life Radio was kind of the impl- impetus for this, and it kind of is, but they've already got that whole... Dude, they've got the whole webcomic and uh, movies and video games. That's pretty much what they... Ta- at the core, that is what they talk about, you know? their thing yeah i mean they talk about some tv stuff they talk about you know um yeah yeah, basically so we're gonna take what they do and we're gonna put a little spin on it and we're gonna add a shot of testosterone and see what happens i prefer a splash of testosterone a splash just just a pinch between your cheek and gum ew you know you know who that was that's my daughter. That? that is my daughter's great uncle, Walt Garrison. A pinch between your teeth and gum. Yep. That is the most disgusting habit. I mean, seriously, I, I smoke pipes and cigars. Um, I used to smoke cigarettes, and 
dude, like chew tobacco. That's nasty. That is that is like the nastiest of the nasty. Yeah, that's gross. I know. I could never really get into that. You know, uh-uh. I really, I really couldn't. I, I, I mean, not that I even tried it. I mean, it just, it just looked so freaking nasty. ACTJ says he's addicted to that stuff. I'm sorry. There's a there's a song out now that I heard on the radio about taking a, a sip of somebody's uh, spit cup and. Um, I'm like, okay, how on earth can you even begin to take a sip of it? Because before you get it anywhere close to your face, you're smelling it. That's gross. I'm ew, ew, dude. That's just, I'm ew. just not, I'm just not even. Oh, ugh. Anyway, yeah. Oh yeah, we're we're we're. Oh yeah, full on. We're gonna be talking about estrogen. We love the estrogen. Sometimes on Geekapalooza. Oh yeah. Yeah, as long as you know. Anyway, Fallout 3. Yes, indeed. Okay. Indeedy. Indeedy. All right, we're 218 and 29 seconds into this podcast, and now it is over. <laughs> Got it. Maybe. <laughs> Got it a lot. All right. Okay. Well, it's a good, it's a, it was a good show. I enjoyed it. Thank you very much, Gamer Nation, uh, to uh, the 51 of you now in the chat room. We appreciate you all taking the time to spend with us and allowing us to invade your personal space. Word. That's right. So you guys stay hard, keep jamming, and we will see you.